Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, Certainly Something, Perhaps the Stars. My name is Liam Nolan. Mine's Wero Kiryuki. And I'm with a martyr complex, slowly going completely insane. And today we're discussing chapters 5 and 6. If you want to ask any questions or come be on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at tourash2unadvised.gmail.com. That's Susan the number two, and I may check the emails and no spoilers, please. With that out of the way, many thanks for Lord and Savior. Carlisle Foster Cray de la Tremoe. El Monal Tyrant. Well, of course, kill. Let's get on with the show. I haven't been on in a while. Yeah, hello, welcome. Listen, I know usually we let people talk about stuff they want to talk about. And I know that you're a guest who has a lot they want to talk about. However, I only have yeah. six hours to record this episode. <laughs> and You're right, right? At least an hour of it is going to have to be a single page. I I am going to push for that single page to maybe be discussed abbreviatedly because in fact the book does a decent job of talking about it and also it we're like a tenth of the way through this book it, there's a chance it might come up again okay fine um the short version now nah, we'll get to it you all know we'll what my short it. version of this is so chapter five operation baskerville not a reference to anything in particular just a random British location. No, it's absolutely a reference to The Hound of the Baskerville, the Sherlock a, Holmes a, story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Can you not even... Okay. Yeah, is this yes. a bit? Yes, this is a bit. absolutely. Okay. This is the most blunt reference <laughs> in a chapter title we've gotten yet. Uh, Gotta get blunt. it's a bit. I don't know how it could. That's a lie. I know how it could. I don't know how it could that I expect to happen. So this opens a lot like the opening uh, of The Guns of August. And I think maybe that's supposed to make us think about the coronation of the King of Spain as in some sense being a funeral for Europe. So to clarify, The Guns of August is a book by Barbara Tuckman about the beginning of World War I that gets uh, into the uh, way that European diplomacy was conducted, used to be conducted, and how it intersects with the changing dynamics and personalities at the dawn of the 20th century, um, as well as all of the particular national interests in the lead-up to and early days of the conflict and how everything plays out in just the lead-up to and the first month of the war. Like, it ends I want to say like 36 days. It's right after um, the the French prevent uh, Paris from being in peril. Um, which is like just over a month into the war. Important. So it really is like it ends with trenches being dug. Yes, it, it that is exactly how it ends. Yes. Importantly, it opens at a funeral that is incredibly well attended by uh, the upper class of Europe at the time. Who's funeral? And a lot of... One of the Hasbro's? Uh, it's King... 
I think it's is that Edward, King Edward's uh, funeral? It might be Edward. Because it's the Edwardian Edward. era. Yeah. Yeah. He died. So not the Edward who's a, who liked Hitler, the, the previous Edward. Yes. The one who died immediately before World War One. A bit more before World War One. Ah. Like, people are still on friendly terms. Pretty immediately. Like, it, you could just look up deaths of British uh, monarchs. There we go. And it would be the one right before everything fell apart. But a lot of the language used to describe the early scene as everyone went to attend that funeral is coming up here, except instead of a funeral... Now it is Spain. Nineteen ten. Edward the Seventh died in nineteen ten. Yeah, right. Four right years there. before. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll give it that to you. Um. So the, we get a, a lot of other things too. So I want to note the, the, a theme here, which is that um. So Nine says this is the birth of a new imperium, which hasn't happened since eight hundred A.D. Unless you count Napoleon. Mm-hmm. So this is a lie. Well, not a lie. He he's they're just wrong. Right. Okay. You've got to settle down with your anti-Masonic propaganda. Um, this is not an anti-Masonic propaganda. This is the Masons don't control the world. This is a true fact. Okay. Right now. Progress. Continue. Okay. Um, and this is even anti- what what has happened here is that this becomes clear as you get later uh, is that Nine A has has fully swallowed the poison pill of Masonic historiography. Um. And it's going to have probably impact things later on. I'm not sure I agree with either part of that. Like, 9A talks later about, you know, which propaganda you believe. Yeah, um, the fact you phrase it like that is, is in fact, you've, you've swallowed the poison pill. It's not propaganda to say the Masons didn't control the, the world right now. It's simply fact. You don't you know that. Yes, I do. Propaganda for me. This propaganda chapter... True. <laughs> It can be, no, but it's simply uh, the propaganda is next chapter, and I'm really hoping. To I'm get sorry, did you here. not see the spooky images sent out around the world to make everybody really mad at one minority group? We'll we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> we're still on paragraph one, guys. Paragraph I two a pattern, and I need to address it. Mm-hmm. Why is it that? Every episode of this show starts with me referencing the first paragraph of the chapter and someone saying to me, actually, slow down, I have notes. First of all, it's the second <laughs> chapter of this paragraph. Second paragraph Secondly, of the chapter. Yes, it's the second paragraph. Secondly, I didn't do it this time. No, it was me, and he's and, and he's talking about me the first time, too, because first episode of the series leads with me, like, saying... Uh, to Johnny, wait, before that I have a note. <laughs> when he's talking about the identification. This has actually happened, like, every time. This has become a recurring theme. Do I need to start opening by discussing my top facts about the number seven? So that you can bring us back a little to discuss the font on the capital C in chapter? Or perhaps the line above both words... And it's it's importance to the plot. The line is it just over a symbol the... for Masonic perfection? <laughs> you hang on, hang on. You actually did get into the text above the line. 
because chapter one versus chapter the first is a thing in these book series. It tells us who's writing the chapter 9A or Mycroft. We did talk about that, yeah. That's below the line. My no, that's above this, the line! No, my printing of this has a line directly below oh, the line. Oh, you're talking that line. Chapter not the, beginning not the little... with a capital and followed by small yeah, yeah. caps. And then five, all in large caps, followed yep. by another line, followed by a decorative bar... Yep. Followed by the text of the chapter title, starting with a capital and following in lowercase letters, no longer small caps. Um, well, it's a title, yeah. yeah. Yes. Anyway, I actually don't have a lot to say about the coronation. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, other I, than like, other than 800 AD is a reference to Charlemagne and the yes. beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't count Napoleon. Napoleon seems like a, a person to count here. Who else would you count? Hitler wasn't coronated maybe you could count the creation now but he doesn't he wants a monarch no he doesn't want a monarch he wants an emperor there's plenty monarchs and an emperor of a new empire in europe so like the ottomans aren't gonna count a because 9a is greek uh and b because they're mostly not in europe except turkey's Kinda. Do Habsburgs not count? Holy Roman Empire. No, when it died in uh, after the seventeen no eighteen oh five. The Habsburg claim ran through the Holy Roman Empire through much of its history, and then eventually gained dominion over Austria and then Austria Hungary in particular. But for... well, sure, but they um they had to make a new empire because they knew that the Holy Roman Empire was going down, so they made themselves the Emperor of Austria. Yeah, that, that's not what this is getting at. This is talking about a new thing, like Charlemagne, King of the Franks, becomes Emperor of the Romans, or Napoleon, uh, Consul of France, is Emperor of the French Empire. These are different things. Emperor of the French, I think. It's a different thing from being Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to Emperor of Austria and just kind of move. That's fair. Okay, so... People come, they all congratulate, like, 9 is looking at the crown, because it, it looks nice, this whole new crown. And then we get um, these, like, reports from all sorts of scattered regions around the world, and they're, like, pretty scattered. They're, like, across the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I added them to the map. Sorry, I did want to mention uh, one brief thing about the coronation. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the subject yeah, of World War One. There is a brief mention of All Quiet on the Omnifront, mm-hmm. which is a reference that's to a, the... That's a really good line. It is. Uh, it's a reference to the Remark book, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is kind of the definitive uh, cultural image of World War I, um, especially on the Western Front in particular. Um, is that the one where the character was disappointed with his, co- with his fellow soldiers for going to prostitutes? I mean, he also Boy. does it. I can't believe that's your takeaway from All Quiet on the Western Front. Like, All Quiet on the Western Front is really good, um, but the image that sticks in my mind from the book is uh, there's a point at which he runs to another trench and has to kill somebody in a foxhole uh, and is left there with the body for an extended period of time and goes through the man's stuff and is confronted with this idea that the enemy and the person he has killed 
is fundamentally a person much like him, and he fantasizes for a period of time about living that man's life instead uh, once the war is over and trying to go. I think he's like a the, the guy he killed is like a print shop owner or worker or something like that. And he imagines living that life out instead while he's hiding for his life. Um, it is. It's a very evocative read... image and one that's Perhaps. really important in this scene where, you know, this whole war is about normal people now being torn apart by everything else and people who might have otherwise been friends destroying each other. What? Oh, come on. So, no, um, I disagree. I think there's That's a, what a civil war connection is. you can draw there. No, no, back, hang on. Um, the, the obvious parallel between this and that book, other than uh, how they're both... You know what? I can't even compare them. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front is probably the bleakest book I've ever read. Uh, but the thing that makes it interesting to bring up in this chapter is that... Uh, spoilers, I apologize. It's old, you should have read it by now. The part we get the title from is the end of the book, where our point of view character is killed for no reason and no one knows about it or cares, and it's not Correct. even reported on. The thing that's happening... Oh! Who's like, no one can report anything? Yeah. All the trackers okay. go down. That's afterwards. But yeah, I understand the point. It's afterwards. Uh, oh, is that six? No, it's, no, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, in this five. chapter, it's later in the chapter. So, the, um... I think the I read a borderized uh, version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which didn't include a death, but did include prostitutes, but only negative terms. Yours didn't include a death. I think you are thinking of a different thing. People die the whole time. Uh, people are dying but people time. dying for no reason. There I is think... a section where he like hangs out in a local village uh, with some local girls and stuff, which is probably the section that Walrus was talking about. Because I don't remember prostitutes in that segment, but there might have been. Fully, I think it's a different book. I think it was a, a play. Uh, the title was a play on All Quiet on the Western you... Front. Are you thinking of the one where uh, the main character spends the whole thing trying to get himself declared insane so he doesn't have to fly anymore? No, not that one. That's it was Catch Twenty Two by Joe Catch- Teller, by the way. Catch yeah, 22. I haven't read Catch Twenty Two. Um, no, no, All no, Quiet on the I- Western Front. Uh, so there's. I think I read I think the there... children's version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which included prostitutes but didn't include death. No, it couldn't be done. Um, <laughs> I object to the very concept of a children's version <laughs> of that story. <laughs> anyway, well, a giant axolotl attacks. Giant axolotl attacks. So I've included in the map of all the the new sites, and I've labeled them with dinosaur markers, so so you can tell them differently from the sites that are not. Yeah, these are utopian attacks. Far off locations scattered around the world at the borders of reservations, etc. And suddenly. Colorado here to be new beast attacks uh, start coming in over the trackers and those places are all removed from the communications hub somehow uh, mm-hmm. presumably by the attacks of these you beasts uh, mm-hmm. and we get descriptions of all of them turns out they're spooky I, I, there's description later about how these are the, supposed to be the scary you beasts that make people think of like the AI murder shark 
Ross Vether, but like, right. I'm having trouble picturing that... a. Hmm? Yeah, one of them is just they just send that word. The only thing they managed to get out was Ross Vether. Yeah, like yeah, that was I their think entire that's message. Because uh, it's there. Yeah. Um, but the question is, how do you make an axolotl terrifying, and have it be the, you know, the image that you want to scare the world with? It, you, you make it too big. Fair listener can go look at a picture of an axolotl and see the most generically cute being ever constructed. Easy. Have it eat somebody. Yeah, it's Have it But like... that doesn't happen. We don't see any of these monsters kill anyone. Yet. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a moment where a coelacanth is described as mauling something, and you expect, like, when you hear the word maul, to hear like a human being getting attacked. No, it mauls, quote-unquote, a building. Well, 9A is very clear to note that if this was Utopia using you beasts in a war, Utopia would have done a better job killing people with them. Uh, which is probably true. Yeah, that's just true. The dragons come up again. I cannot wait to see you beasts that are just dragons used you already in did this that. war. Oh, never mind. Sure. No, no, we saw one back when I was still convinced that the UBs were just Pokemon. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I no longer think that's 100% accurate. Because of the axolotl? It's, it's pretty of... accurate, but it's not, <laughs> not, not so 100%. I do want uh, to note that apparently Nahuatl is no more. The Udua second language is... Uh, Nahuatl, yeah. Nahuatl. Nahuatl is no more. I always so the cast, last cast at Nahuatl, Nahuatl, is um is is fun. And also last cast in Axlotl is hard. It's hard saying new consonants. That's that's my freight. That's my new thing. I agree. Um, also, but, as a as a brief note, because apparently I'm not gonna get to do an extended rant on the subject at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, one cute thing is. You can see how, in this description of all the different places that have been attacked, 9A's got this lovely, extremely parenthetical heavy style that makes it seem like the things being written out are a little unplanned, a little urgent, maybe the author is a little insecure, mm -hmm. um, which is very tellingly different from the way Mycroft writes. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's similar to anyone in this book and what we've seen of them, it's somewhat similar to Sniper's writing style in Sniper's, in Sniper's chapter, but only in terms of the use of parentheticals heavily and not the insecurity aspect, which is interesting. Yeah, Mycroft would simply give us a paragraph on the beauty of, like, Alice Springs. It's a pretty place. Um, yep, big rock. Also, uh, Here There Be Dragons, which is a uh, joke that gets referenced in the Monsters Attacking segment. Uh, mm -hmm. Of, you know, a section of a map that is written to denote that this area is unknown. Uh, there's another way you can write that. Terra Ignota. Yep. So. So, since we're getting to things being unknown, I'm assuming we're hitting the part now where we're meaningfully losing contact. And I have to say, I'm deeply disappointed I didn't predict that the war we were going to get was also going to be a war from history and not from Terra Ignata. 
So that's one of the things that I find really interesting about futuristic depictions of, depictions of war. Um, I'm not the most well-read in terms of science fiction, but one of the science fiction books that is one of my favorites is uh, Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, which is essentially an extended uh, parallel to Vietnam and his experience as a Vietnam soldier uh, in a futuristic war in which time dilation is a major factor. Mm -hmm. uh, when soldiers and whatnot are going from place to place, they are traveling at relativistic speeds, which causes time about the craft that they're moving to uh, speed up relative to them. So they can leave on what is, from their perspective, a three-year campaign and come back home to parents who have aged 30 years and a society that is no longer anything like what they left. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a very good book. I like it quite a bit. Uh, but one of the things that it does is, uh, as the future technology advances, because technological advancement also happens at speeds relative to them, so the technology will improve faster than their aging, and harder, and it gets harder and harder for them to keep up until they find ways to make it easy for them to keep up. As it gets crazier and crazier technologically, things kind of snap back at a certain point, and the final conflict there's this science fiction device that prevents any object moving faster than a given speed from traveling into an area, um, which means all the fighting in that area is of the form of javelins and shields and arrows, <laughs> because not even light will get in. Um, and so the, the like final segment of that book uh, of conflict is in the form of ancient war. Um, like, specifically, what it's like being inside a testudo, being pelted from the outside, waiting for your opponents to run out of things to hit you with. Um, it's a very interesting passage. Um, but that's kind of been the way that I expected this book to play out in a certain respect, where as the technology and the war expanded, eventually older styles of combat would come to predominate, as opposed to the modern, futuristic, spooky combat that, like, is being focused on. Like, eventually, the car network will go down, and, like, World War II-style stuff will be happening. Which I expected to happen a lot later, by the way, instead of, like, Chapter 2. <laughs> um, right. What I didn't expect was that all of a sudden we would not only lose the cars, but lose cell phones, right? We're back to yeah, the internet. couriers run messages. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it it's it makes really perfect interesting. sense for this book. It's exactly yep. what this story has been about. I feel like an idiot, but I did not see it coming at all. There is a certain level of disappointment, though. Like, you kind of want to see what the war of the Terra Ignata world would be like when everything is so thoroughly interconnected. And that kind of isn't happening right now. Maybe it'll happen later, but we're getting the breakdown of that interconnectivity to make it a more normal, understandable conflict. It does seem... So, okay, I have... You have actually zoomed ahead quite quite a bit in terms of the actual text, but I have notes nevertheless. So it does signal some interesting things about how their internet works, right? So, um... The internet nowadays runs through wires, like physical wires on the ground. That's how most of the net data travels. Um, through fiber optic cables that connect in the same places we put telegraph cables, we put 
fiber optic cables to connect to various places to other various places. And, and sharks eat them. Yeah, and sharks, sharks really love our undersea cables. They love munching on them. Yeah. It's kind of a it's problem. An, it's an unfortunate thing. But, um... This is not true of the Terracnata world. Right? If it was, they could still communicate via a, an Ethernet cord, right? With everyone else in the world. But no, this isn't we... true. They have instead point-to-point connections and satellite connections. Yeah. No, there's uh, In this chapter, we are informed that there is jamming on a worldwide scale. And presumably that jamming wouldn't are... work if it was just no. wire connections everywhere. There are undersea connections. And they were all cut. What? Where? In in these chapters, uh, all Tell of the me a page numbers were severed. But t- to Liam's point, like made like hubs and communication sites are getting attacked by the monsters. This so like, maybe that's what happened. What's well, I also don't. More interesting that I don't know why also... you didn't focus on is that they're still using disks in their hard drives. I didn't notice that at all. Where? Both of these. I want to know a page number. I'm... Calm down. I'm looking. I thought you both read the chapter. I didn't think those were very notable things. They seemed much less exciting than the death of Europe. Or all of chapter six. Um... This is, uh, not great podcast content, so I'm going to talk about random things. No, wait. We can Um, talk about things that happen in between. Uh... So... So jellyfowl are wait. jellyfish birds of some kind that are one I, of the I, several attacking you beasts. What the hell does that look like? A jellyfish bird that attacks places. I don't really know what that's supposed to be. I don't know what that means either. Okay. Oh, I'm lying. 55. It only discusses hard drive data. Which could be a different storage mechanism. Let's, let's, let's get ourselves to that point, which is only a couple pages more. So let's just go through that. Um, so they're trying to figure out what's happening to these attacking places. They eventually start like modeling where the places are and start trying to call them to prepare them. Yep. And we see an interesting breakdown of what happens as these calls go on. So the first they get call is real- more efficient. Uh, they like, take less time to say, and the people saying them grow more confident. But also, what information starts getting left out is interesting. And what they start, like, focusing in on. Like, what they start saying they are, like, who they're from, right? So, like, initially it's Romanova calling, and they try to, like, give a rundown of their uncertainty. Next, it's Alliance Police, Vicenza and Triumvirate. Um, a warning, a large hostile you beasts And then it's triumvirate police. Uh, and, uh, and the last monsters. version of the message is also, yeah, you're about to be attacked by utopian monsters. Which is, uh, a thing, especially since apparently, according to Huxley, Utopia is not responsible for this. But now, after the first rash of, uh, messages going out that are couched in terms of Probably you beasts. You're going to be attacked by you beasts. Now it's you're going to get attacked by utopian monsters, uh, mm-hmm. coming from a voice of authority. Mm-hmm. They're doing the propaganda work for them. Actually, actually, I want to know here that I actually do believe the utopians when they say 
it isn't them. I agree. Um, yeah. I think what is probably most likely to be their fault is the, um, and the Masons' fault, is the worldwide blackout. Uh, but that also doesn't quite fit. So, um, why do you I think, think it's probably just the. They're jammed too. Think it's the Masons' fault. Utopians are just refusing to communicate with each other. Um, the Masons, I think it was done not on behalf of most Masons, but like specifically um, on their idea of what Cornell would want. My, so my, my general theory of what happened here is that the, the anti... And it isn't quite fit, right? So the, there, are, there are several problems I'll get into in a bit. So the general theory is that um, the anti-utopians started a, uh, to do the, the worldwide propaganda campaign of Baskerville. Uh, and, they had a, and their plan was to make it look like Utopia was attacking places... And then release the oath, along with the highlighted lines, to make it seem like not only is Utopia attacking places, uh, the Masons uh, are, you know, can control by Utopians. We're jumping ahead to Chapter Six. Yeah, wow, you fun. were. Look, maybe okay. we should. We can just. We should come back. Okay, we we cannot because you've actually okay. already caveated your way out of the big dramatic thing that you said that made me bite, which is I think this is all the Masons' fault. By which I mean, uh, one element of it after someone else instigated, which I'm I'm more on board with. Okay. I'm also kind of unclear on the logic that like Masons would go against what is seemingly the thing that Cornell's actually doing because of what he would secretly want them to do. Like it's not a... Masons, Utopians. Okay, I guess the that Masons makes more would sense follow orders. Yeah, the, ma- the Masons will follow orders. That's like, you know, their thing. Uh, okay, so let's go back then. Okay, um, we talk I want to talk about the Fog of War. Huh? We're not there yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. Um, okay, so someone's at Utopian's desk. We have an interesting thing where, like, people are trying to, like, explain what's happening to the world. So Hillary's is saying, don't fear. Um, but... 9A is thinking, why wasn't I told? Um, and it's a very interesting thing where 9A expects to be told, and like, why? Because he's not quite a murder madon anymore. She. What? It. Sorry, I'm gonna have to start doing this. My pronouns for 9A are she. Okay. Um, 9A is clearly did I use he? it. I should use they, but Johnny has poisoned me. So, 9A has... Oh, this is going to be so confusing. 9A has um, not not really remembered it anymore, right? Not really allied with the same people. So why do they expect to be told? Well, part of it's an, a more of an emotional reaction more than like a logical expectation because of her position as anonymous and at Madame's and in all of these other ways. She's close and connected to a lot of the layers of power and the idea that she would be excluded from these is uh, sort of can feel like a personal attack. One of the things that is very interesting about 9A as a narrator is how deeply insecure she is and how it comes out repeatedly in her text. Um, like it's there in the, in like at the beginning of chapter one, talking about paranoia's doubt when you can't believe that this special person actually likes you 
fantastic line that I'm not doing justice to, by the way. But well, uh, that makes sense. They are like 18, I think. 20. Which, by the way, where do, where do you get 20? It's mentioned offhand in one of these chapters. It's like mentioned that they're 20 briefly in like chapter three or four. I know because I was surprised to get that specific information. Uh, and more, but like, more overtly, yeah. the surprising thing about that is that uh, they were, became the, the the next in line for the anonymous three years before the start of BTS, uh, perhaps the stars. Which means, if they're 20-ish, that they were 17 when they meet Vivian, become the, the next, next anonymous, and get taken to Madame's and then abused by Dominic. Which yeah, is the same age about that, that Mycroft right? does all that. Uh, Mycroft was a year younger. Mycroft was 17. Mycroft was 17. Mycroft um, was 17 at the time the of the murders. Mycroft was 14. Mycroft when, when he, was when not Mycroft, known to have done that. Yeah. Mycroft yeah, was in did. Madame's at 7. But Mycroft was 17 when he was acknowledged as the Haley Anonymous. Yes. And was actually in Madame's and abused by... Okay, yeah, but that's not when he identified. You know, that part doesn't even matter. Correct, correct. The part I didn't matters, say when he identified. The part that matters is that 9A should not get to be the anonymous because 9A was wrong. Mycroft was not the anonymous. <laughs> no, we're, it's just the case that figuring out who the next in line for the anonymous is works as well. If that Does was trying to say Does that. It, Jed got to it second, but was proved first. He probably know, but not even what I was going with. Um, the point is, this totally invalidates the office of the anonymous as like a useful thing that's chosen for any good reason at all. You made a usually case is chosen in the Discord recently that like, well, no, because you have to look at the words the anonymous is writing and correct. Use cool luck, bullshit. Um, that is not what 9A did, who is now the Correct. anonymous. Yeah. I agree. This is a sham so, of an office. You become the anonymous by happening to be near the right person at the right time. Most usually, I think it's not so obvious as, as Minecraft, and it does mean that some of, of 9A's insecurity is, like, well-placed. They're not actually, like... They, went, they did not get into this office because of the traits that would make them look anonymous. They just also happen to have those... Luckily, they got into the office because they were in the right place at the right time. There were a lot of people in the right place at the right time who didn't put two and two together. Like, give 9A the appropriate amount of credit. When they put into the right situation, took it's credit, though. More than zero. No, yeah, we'll give 9A a non-zero amount of credit, which is why uh, 9A is a non-zero amount of secure as well. Um, and what was... Vivian thinking. They knew that the office was important, right? Yeah. Vivian's thinking, thank God it isn't Mycroft's. Thank goodness that my office will not die with this mentally ill serial killer. Vivian was a right? big Mycroft fan. They would have been fine with it. Vivian has very complicated feelings about Mycroft, which includes paternal feelings and also rage. Right, yeah. So, it also means that, like, 9A was, like, fine. 9A doesn't care about the Marty murders in, like, very obvious ways. It's very funny. Because um, 9A was, like, five. Six or seven. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they also... Just, like, word old enough. Uh, speaking of 9A, before I forget, I'm pretty sure they're gonna die. 
before the end of the book. Um, what makes you say it? A lot of small things, like my early confidence that we were definitely going to get uh, chapters from multiple different perspectives as we went forward. But also, the stuff that's happening is is helping my cause. They're on a quarantined island in the middle of nowhere. Surrounded yeah, by, by the way, Plague was in my violence. predictions. Plague was in mine, too. I got that's the next thing. chapter. Shit. <laughs> yeah, it's... Things are looking bad for them. Yeah. I expect... Which raises the question, like... Soon. And... How do we get the Emperor listed in the Dramatis Personae this time? Um... Yep, we are uh, now post the Dramatis Personae being written. Yes. So... Uh, additional question for you, Liam. If 9A is gonna die, does that mean the office of the Anonymous is gonna die with her? Or is Mycroft being back going at some point, because we know that's gonna happen, gonna fix that? Or is there gonna be a 10th Anonymous in this book? Like, you got three possibilities. Which do you think it is? It seems... If Mycroft doesn't take back the... T I think it's, frankly, kind of a toss-up between Mycroft just becoming anonymous again. Who knows how that might work? There's probably a convention for it someone wrote down somewhere in-universe, but I, I don't know what it might be. Or the next anonymous going on to be uh, the censor. Well, the central question is, did Vivian tell his new bash about him being anonymous? If he did, Suyana's disqualified. If he yes. didn't, Suyana's I mean, uh, I just don't believe you. No, no, no. Suyana uh, knows. Suyana has been told at this point. Yeah, that just Suhan seems like the kind of thing knows. that these characters would do. Suyana knows. Does that mean that Suyana was told or Suyana figured it out? Suyana was told. That it's know? a professional thing. They need to know. Yeah. The same way that Papa needs to know. Possibly. Suhan was told eventually, but did he not know before that, right? Suhan knows because they need to be, you know, because they're anonymous. Because they're the censor, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But they were only recently made the censor. And I'm claiming that on that, it's possible that first day when Vivian brought around Mycroft oh, and I also another saying. random servicer who, who Suhan gelled with immediately, that he was like, hey, Hmm. I bet you're going to be the next anonymous after the next anonymous happens. Yes, exactly. The same way that Suyan, that uh, Nine guessed. Mike that Roth. would be cute. Suyan guests Nine. I want to talk so much about Nine and Suyan, but we actually have a chapter to get to. Such a stupid uh, system. Liam still thinks they're fucking. I don't know 100%. why. There's like no doubt okay. in my mind. I can't right. believe you. All right, don't I can't. Think it. I can't let this go if that's what's going to be on the table. Here's the thing. About 9A and Suhyung. 9A has a radically different perspective on the world, despite having an extremely perspective, similar perspective on the world to Mycroft. Uh, 9A is in a position to comment on a lot of the same figures and characters that Mycroft comments on in his sections of these books. And the things they are saying are different, despite there being substantial overlap in what is actually happening on screen. For example... Mycroft is constantly emphasizing that Su Hyun is young and out of his depth. 9A sees Su Han as a friend, confidant, 
and fellow genius. But if you actually look at what's happening on screen, you can really read it either way if you were inclined to do so, but the fact that you're reading it from 9A's perspective can mean you're getting one perspective when, and therefore might see things that Mycroft would miss or miss things that Mycroft would tell you about, which is really interesting. This also comes up in the conversation with Briar Casella. When Briar in chapter four is talking to 9A, that entire conversation is the emotional manipulation that a mother does to her child. And this is not something that 9A talks about at all, because 9A is not used to the gendered language and is not using the gendered language that Mycroft would use. It's really interesting. So here's... Sure, I agree with most of that. I would say all, but I didn't keep close enough track to be sure I don't want to disagree with you about one element of it later. Also, though, 9A and Su Hyun... Su Hyun. 100%. And a romantic relationship. Perhaps at this point, a romantic relationship from which they are uh, tragically, you know, glancing at each other and avoiding pursuing for professional reasons. But no, I, it's it's crazy not to me that you guys single don't all person, think this is happening. Not a single person in this story has not pursued a relationship for, for, for professional reasons. <laughs> These are both new. Maybe they're just getting into the groove of you know, destroying the world. They Maybe share they're spots. better than they their parents. They constantly sleep it in the same not, bed. Yeah. Like... No, I agree. And <laughs> perhaps that this is like a a will-they-won't-they they situation. Uh, that is my concession to you and your nonsense. Not what I actually think is happening. I think 9A is carefully writing around all the more incriminating elements here. Speaking of incriminating elements... Can we talk about the fact that there's a fucking triumvirate? It's oh, fine. yeah. It's like, it's, like, official now, right? I thought it was, like, some private thing. Everyone just, like, an informal They're just announcing people, it to everybody. It's like, yeah, yeah the triumvirate saying, has now, decided, blah, blah, blah. There's a triumvirate audit, triumvirate police. Uh, and I'm becoming more concerned that there's not a humanist on this group body. This no, is, like, probably a problem. Dictatorial power, if the censor as dictator... Wants a triumvirate, no, no, no. they get a triumvirate. They have to be awarded dictatorial power. That's how it works in the ancient Roman Republic. You can't just and it say, happened. by the way, I'm dictator now. I mean, no, except for those times awarded. that it happened. Yeah, that, that happened. Yeah, but that's not supposed to happen. The way <laughs> it's it supposed did. to work is the Senate awards you dictatorship. That, that did. They did. Did they vote? They have, yeah. Oh, Sihan is in dictatorial power. Yeah. yeah. It's oh, like okay. official. That's for real what's happening. It okay. happened yeah. in... Will to battle, I think. Yeah. In they needed the emergency center. powers in order to make the economy not do a bunch of stuff that's bad. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, when. Which, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what happened. I didn't think so, they retained those up until this point. Okay. Why yeah, they just kept on having them up. We've been in yeah. crisis the point. Triumvirates the are bad! <laughs> You're not well, supposed to do triumvirates! Well, don't worry. It's a triumvirate plus one. The, the problem with a triumvirate is that there were two in the ancient Roman Republic, and they destroyed the Republic, sort of. The first triumvirate yeah. was uh, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, uh, basically three of the most powerful military and economic forces in the ancient Roman Republic, deciding amongst themselves without the authority or power from the Senate or the people of Rome 
that they were going to be the ones to fix all the terrible crises. And between the three of them, if they can keep the peace between the three of them, they can fix everything and also work things out to their advantage. Crassus dies by getting covered in death gold after fighting a bunch what? of parts. It's there's a whole thing. They they covered in what? Death they, gold. They melt down gold and pour it down his throat because Crassus was famously greedy. Uh, while he's on campaign against, I think it's the Parthians. Uh, so expensive. So, Why gold? Who's there? Because account? he was a he was an obscenely wealthy man who and they like took the gold from him or something. Listen, Point you can is, kill the rich with lead. It's fine. Oh my god. Crassus dies, the triumvirate falls apart, especially once Pompey's daughter, who is married to Caesar, dies in childbirth or something. She dies somehow. Um, Caesar and Pompey go to war with each other. Uh, Caesar wins, makes himself dictator, more dictator, dictatoriest, gets assassinated, and in the wake of his assassination, his adoptive son Octavian... Uh, his general, Mark Antony, and his other general, Lepidus, make a second triumvirate. And then that triumvirate also falls apart after they deal with Caesar's assassins. Lepidus doesn't fucking matter. Least important person in this story. Uh, Mark Antony and Octavian go to war. Octavian wins that war and becomes the first Roman emperor. I like, think this Julius Lepidus fanfic. I don't fucking care. My point is... While everything is falling apart, these important power brokers say, hey, we're important, we're powerful, we can steer the ship if it's the three of us working together, managing our mutual interests, and as long as we don't fall apart, we can steer this ship the right way. And it makes sense because things are bad enough to want that kind of direction and authority. Except the action of making a triumvirate, of making the Shadow Council, of making this extra legal thing that is completely self-appointed. And let's not forget the triumvirate is definitely self-appointed. Like, these are just people who decided, I guess we're going to have a triumvirate now, are in response to all of these terrible norm violations and the breaking down of society, violating more norms and breaking down more of society. Yeah, I... I don't think triumvirates are, like, so bad, broadly, historically speaking, but we are in literal New Rome, so, you know, I don't think it's going to end well. It's it's rough, buddy! I also want to note there are, uh, that the there is a third triumvirate in Roman history, the Roman Republic, the last Roman Republic, uh, which also ended with everyone dying. But they didn't, I don't think they split apart, they just, like, the Pope killed them all. So, you know. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. Uh, okay, where are we? I don't know. Uh, so, know you beasts am, are attacking. But... Operation Baskerville! Yeah, yeah so... so uh, monsters attack. I'm, I'm just going to give a brief summary of this chapter, and then we can go back and fill in with the most interesting comments. Um, we can... I, I have the next bit here. You don't have to do that. So okay. After uh, 9A... Like contemplates that they're not being trusted by uh, Mason, which is probably like correct and fine. But like, bought into this, um, so everyone else in the office is like, "Well, okay, we have to defend the Utopians from the riots." And Nine Eye points out, if this, if this is the Utopians, then like this, the Utopians like attacked first, and by defending them, we are making a another political statement which may violate the neutrality they set out to have. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
All of a sudden, let's uh, go off. Roma Nova loses its connection, and it's unclear whether the worldwide system has gone down or Roma Nova itself has gone down. We find out later it's the worldwide system has gone down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it leads to this moment of realizing just how disconnected everything is mm-hmm. and having to deal with trying to figure out everything on the ground as it is and as it happens, which results in a lot of people going up to start trying to figure out things from what the situation is outside, try and find reboots, etc. Yada, yada, yada. It's very good. Um, Our narrator goes to the roof, talks with Huxley, then they find out Huxley doesn't think it was Utopia. Everyone else seems to mostly Hux- agree Huxley it Huxley declares it's not Utopia. Yeah. Huxley could be wrong. Um, could be. And then uh, that's the the gist of this chapter. The last thing that happens is we find out Utopian backup is on the way to this building in Romanova. Mm-hmm. Huxley is apparently. I do want to. So I do want to talk briefly about what Huxley is talking about, because what I Huxley's have stuff from before that, but I wanted to make okay. sure we had all our structure in, because um, we're like an hour in, and he told he told us right. This is the easy chapter. Episode. Yeah, I agree, though, that this is the easy chapter. Um, yep. And we're already an hour in. Yep. Huxley yeah. is injured. Yes. As a Zarm and a Sling. Has been the entire time. The entire time of this book. Yeah, the first time we see him in this shit book. Yeah, oh, when he gives the this, hat. This, this isn't the first time we saw him. That was a while ago, wasn't it? No, it was like 10 days. I'm not sure. I think it's supposed you have to be the dates. that he was injured trying to help people in the Atlantis strike. Yes. But I'm not sure that that's okay. Um, it's so we see him injured in now. Start this book. I feel like that he should be healed by now. So on the event, he probably... If he got like a broken arm. That takes six weeks under, under present day technology. Yeah, but forget yeah. present day technology. They're utopians. Sure, in they're wartime. utopians cut off from everybody it's else. It's been... Eight no, days since the eighth. Okay, so like the earliest that um, Nine could have seen Huxley is on the eighth, uh, and it's the twenty sixth. So it's been like when was Atlantis? Uh, Eighteen days. Atlantis was the seventh. I checked because I wanted to see if it lined up with the start date of World War One two. Sorry, which is September first. Not seventh. September seventh might actually be the end. What about the guns of August ends? No, okay. If it's around then, should definitely be able to heal one piddly little broken arm during wartime after preparing for war in twenty days. Kind of depends, I think. Like, yeah, I, I believe that they'd be able to do it if they could get to Huxley, but there aren't any cars. I also pretty Huxley is like hiding. I don't think Huxley has been told to ha- to, to to help Nine A. Huxley's just been like hiding in their house. I am Huxley's not under on... the impression that Utopians are suffering from the transit problems that you're implying they are suffering from. Their system is de- is uh, prevented down. from going. Apparently, the yeah. Utopians can become invisible at will and fly. We meet flying Utopians this very chapter. They can't fly at the heights and altitudes and speeds of the cars. They might be able to get from place to place more effectively. 
do you think it will take them to cover one of their own cars in Griffincloth? I don't think only... Well, first of all, we find out very quickly that people have started figuring out ways to get around the Griffincloth problem. Pretty effective ones. Yeah. We're told uh, that the humanist cars can outpace the utopian cars and hunt them yep. out of the sky. Yep. I believe the utopians have sufficient stealth technology to make that not be a problem for them. Possibly I eventually. would be surprised if that does not come out as true. Okay. Um, Keep in mind, it's not just stealth. Like, you'd have to hide something moving at exceptional speeds to pre- to pressurize the air around it. Like, hiding that air cushion is a problem. Yeah. All and kinds of things are problems. Building a moon base is a problem. It's true, it is. <laughs> it's different Building kind a of Mars problem. base, bigger problem. Yes? A third different kind of problem. Anyway, Cicero and Voltaire. Okay, uh... No, before that. Um... So they're jamming the entire world, and via the cars, that, via the cars. That's that's what it's implied to be. Um, so whoever is like, jamming the signal the around power, the world is also responsible for the cars, presumably. Yeah, because like no one else could could hold this information. Which is also interesting because later, it, it takes a gap to, to distribute the oath, but you can just just if you have enough power to jam, you can just. Jam and then send your own signal out. Presumably, uh, that's a true fact about jamming. Okay. Um, you don't know that necessarily. Yes, I. That's how jamming works. You don't even know the basic principle by which the trackers work. They might they use not radio. Even use radio. What do you mean? What the fuck would they use? I don't know. Future beams could be anything. <laughs> Quantum entanglement. <laughs> if they use radio, which I think they do, given what happens later in the chat in these chapters, um, you can just send your own signal out on the on a jamming signal. Also, someone specifically proposes that this might be Perry Cray's fault, and it's yes. immediate, and it's not immediately contradicted for once. Which means, so who's be. doing this? Fucking maybe. I feel like, because here's the thing, is that the cars aren't exploding in everyone's faces, killing millions. Mm-hmm. I feel like if it was Perry Cray, the cars would be exploding in everyone's faces, <laughs> killing millions. My concern is that I'm worried uh, Casimir Perry is going to become like a rule of threes thing, where it's happened twice, so now we're going to expect it a third time. And the surprise will be that it wasn't Casimir Perry. But I'm not confident enough in that to not think everything that goes wrong is Casimir Perry's fault. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he might still be behind the theft of the Utopian Oath. We still don't know who did that. The Masonic Oath. I think think the Masonic Oath is Perry Cray, and the cards is some other person. Maybe Utopia, but maybe somebody else. Hopefully we'll find out. Uh, yeah. It turns out Romanova is a city that's extremely mixed, politically speaking, which makes it... We knew it... this from the eighth chapter of the first book. Yep. But now it, it matters exactly a lot. Even, 
exactly even proportions. But uh, now it matters the, a lot. And like the worst thing is that not every hive got a hill, which turns out to matter so much now when it didn't matter, like it, when it was happening. So I have a map of the um of the political districts we know of, of Romanova as like all panned out, and the humanists are gonna die. They're all gonna die. They're okay. surrounded. Go ahead and describe the map. Okay. So... No, no. What are you doing? <laughs> this is a podcast. Listen. <laughs> If he's going to talk about the map for 20 minutes, we need to establish what the map looks like. We get a description in chapter of the city of Rome. Can we at least finish I... chapter five? Okay. I'm sorry. I have to be yeah. the one pushing us ahead. This is so weird. Uh, How many more notes do you have on chapter five? We uh, have Cicero and, and, and Voltaire. And then I have to do a line at the end of the uh, page 57. Uh, okay. Why haven't we talked about the shrouded fingers going door to door yet? We don't really have much about them at all. They're spooky. It's real weird. They're not utopians. Utopians don't need shrouds. Um so you we get a lot of you speak at the end of this chapter. Kind of our first big batch of I'm not gonna do Cicero or Voltaire? I'm gonna. I, I don't like how I'm not do. I'm not following your rules. Uh, okay, if we are gonna do that, then I have the last line of fifty-seven. Isn't you speak a line when you speak? You need an escort to Barbican. This line was put out to us on the Terragnada server in order to um, help edit it. Ada Palmer wanted a better version of this line uh, to basically say, "Do you need someone to take you to a safe location?" Uh, and we, the proposed text was, do you need escort to a Barbican? And wanted uh, alternatives to escort and Barbican. Apparently, we, none of them succeeded. <laughs> yeah, we at the time it was pretty clear that we didn't succeed. But it I, was offered to us. I do see why that is a line that maybe people wanted to replace. Barbican, I think, is the problem, not escort. I think escort's actually good. I, I don't like Barbican. Escort is fine. The whole yeah. thing comes together a little stiff, even by you speak standards. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I think that's fun. I did um, like I did the suggestion was... that Yeet would be you speak. That'd be good. Uh, no, for um, sure it would. That's exactly what utopians are like. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I said I like it. Uh, I don't. But like other it. things about the you speak used here. Um, we've got Huxley Mojave on quest, acting mm -hmm. like. Taking a job in your civilian militia structure is like going on a side quest in an RPG. Mm-hmm. Exactly what it's like. Um, there also, do you need party? Adds to that, do you need a party, like a party uh, system? Do you need to team up with people? Uh, mm -hmm. Then we have Paradoppler, Penoptase, and an Adamant. Uh, Penoptase is all-seeing, or all- or many-eyed, uh, it is the name given to Argus, the watchman who uh, Hera has watch over uh, Io when she is turned into a cow, uh, and this Io being one of Zeus's many, many lovers. Um, Argus Panoptes, the hundred-eyed uh, guardian, is uh, put to sleep and then killed by Hermes, and Hera 
uh, seeking to honor his, uh, her faithful watchman, takes his eyes and puts them on peacocks. Um, and that is why peacocks have eyes on them, on their feathers. Um, and adamant is interesting because we get it in lowercase here. But previously, during the Atlantis strike, one of the many dead was adamant, capitalized. Mm. Uh, so we have a proper noun, adamant, and we have a lowercase adamant, uh, you know, a common noun. So what's up with that? Um, one suggestion that I've heard is that these are all like character classes or possibly designations for kinds of U-beasts. So an adamant might be like a party tank, a thing no, no. that shields and protects because, no, you know, adamant... Roles. And yes. they're all specifically observational roles. An adamant? Yep. Can you elaborate on that? I can't elaborate on it well, but I know that when Huxley heard it, he said, yes, I need help, uh, but for warding, not watching. So he needs, so none of those would be suitable for warding and are all, in fact, watchers. Hmm. Well, no, he's offered all of these and, uh, yeah, and he says, yeah, yeah, I need okay, help. Okay, sure, sure. I see, see, but yeah, I yeah, 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 I see what you're saying. This, not what you can do. Go get hmm. someone else. And if okay. an adamant was like a party tank, you know, that's a wardy type thing, he'd have kept him. You'd assume, yeah, 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 I see what you're saying. The It's weird, though, because adamant is a Greek term for diamond, uh, originally, and um, is given as, like, the hardest conceivable metal that is of the very gods. Um, and, uh, when you're talking about the super weapons that the gods use to cut each other apart in Greek myth, they're made of adamantine. Like, uh, when Cronus castrates Uranus, he uses a sickle oh. made of adamant. Well, um, Paradoppler and Panoptes, kind of, you can wrap your head around being observational. Yeah. I agree that's the weird one. Maybe they... Maybe they're getting at a different sense of that word, and they're they're. There just is adamant someone. as in like, con, like persistent, un, unceasing, which would yeah, also so connect to the panoptes thing. Maybe that's what they're getting at: is sort of they're going to yeah, be really consistent about never looking away from one specific thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't love that pitch, but it's it's the best I got. Yeah, it's interesting trying to pick it apart and kind of coming up empty. Like, mm -hmm. you speak is hard. Like, you kind of assume, given everything else, that you speak wouldn't be that hard. But it kind of is. It actually does serve as a barrier. I think you speak wouldn't be that hard in-universe. It's much worse for us. Because we have only these books as context. Yes. Um, also, their greeting and, like, good luck statement is life speed that's yeah, I cute that i like that i like that good. yeah so they they want to report to you nicolon can i talk about what, how rome looks i want to talk is about it, the fog of war is the shape of rome going to be good content for someone who's listening to this as a radio show let me add on top of that is it going to be a value add relative to Chapter 6's actual description of everything? Is your summary and connection to a map that you have made going to be better than the text of this book for explaining? 
Yeah, because I didn't realize what was happening when I read that te- that text. Until I okay. went, went out and made the map. There's like one. Okay, we, we, we wait until I get that. But there's one specific fact I have to like point out, which I didn't realize until I had it all plotted out. Just say that then. Okay, I'll I'll wait. Okay, so <laughs> okay, Cicero and Voltaire, previous uh, figures uh, who changed the world with their words. I'm very happy to see them represented here. Cicero, of course, was eventually executed. His uh, hands and tongue were st- uh, nailed, nailed to, to the Senate. <laughs> as as a warning to anyone else who might try and do the same. Um, Cicero, it's also worth pointing out, some of his best uh, oratory and some of the things that he's most well known for, and some of the things that made the most substantial political difference in his own life, were just talking shit about what a terrible person Mark Antony was. These are the Philippics. Um, they're some of the go-to examples of how to do Roman oratory, and they're just about how terrible Mark Antony is and why you shouldn't listen to him or do anything he says. Look, Cicero knew how to uh, take someone down with words. The Philippics, the Catiline oratories, I mean, like, he knew how to take somebody down. Yep. Now, to be clear, if you're curious, nailing someone's tongue to a door is the ultimate concession in an argument. You cannot But it also ties back to this, but the context in which Cicero is being discussed is about, you know, how did we ever say that the pen was mightier than the sword kind of thing, uh, and, you know, Cicero, in some major sense, loses. He gets executed and has his body parts nailed everywhere, but Cicero's legacy, Cicero's language, Cicero's writings, his oratory go down to be some of the most influential pieces of writing ever. Like, these are some of the foundational texts of, like, the medieval world uh, perspective on a lot of things. It's the, it's the go-to text for learning Latin for most of the history of the, of the Western world. Uh, like, Cicero's works, like, when, we dis- when people discovered ah, a lost work of Cicero, it would be poured over by scholars and, and immediately become a, a sensation and thing that would be analyzed extensively uh so even in death cicero wins which is interesting even as like his government system that he cared for and he defended and he loved falls down around him and a new empire emerges from the ashes his words outlive even the empire and help to inspire people to make something new and something different thousands of years later okay. i wonder what cicero thinks about that i don't know if you'd be that happy about that Probably not, but that's kind of the thing about the future, isn't it? It's going to be an, it's a foreign country to us. Yeah, and that's so, what makes it good. Um, and of course, Do Voltaire, the Zeroth Anonymous. Um, yes, and that, that's, that's, we've had that for ages. We have. Um, we've had it ever since there was a bust of Voltaire in Vivian's office. Yeah. Uh, when we were introduced to him. Yeah, that was real obvious. In retrospect, that was real obvious. Yep. So before we started recording this, you said, how could you get two hours out of chapter five? This is how. Yeah, we're an hour and ten minutes in. This could have been, we'd have hit two hours if we weren't pushing to get through this. I have more to say. <laughs> yes. Fog of War. Too bad, though. Yes. We need to talk about chapter six. Uh, there's been plenty of chapter five. Time to get to the good stuff. There's still Fog of War stuff in chapter six. Okay, let's do it then! 
Okay, chapter six, horses again. Who horses yeah. again? Okay, so we need to talk about horses. <laughs> My original analysis of this chapter is fully fifty percent talking about horses. Like people were screaming at me. You are three pages into this. How are you still going on about nothing but horses? There's an actual chapter here. <laughs> I, I will. I refused. You think the horses are the interesting thing that happens? Because the interesting thing that important. happens is we get the Masonic Oath of Office. And I was absolutely correct. About what? About Jehovah Mason and why Mason was so desperate to get him to agree to the Masonic Oath of Office. Because it can, like, rein him in? Yeah. Yes. So... Liam, you've Hang now on. read the oath. Yeah. What yes, do you think? I have think? now read the oath. Oh, it's fantastic! I have a whole lot of things I want to say about it, but we can, we uh, can get to that. So, so do I, actually. Uh, just so, so first of all, things. this chapter is structured differently. The structure mm-hmm. is the chapter is written effectively contemporaneously mm-hmm. as the events are happening. Whenever nine A gets a few minutes to just start writing. Yes. Um. Which is very different from what we've seen so far, and reads more like a diary than like even the chronicle that we've had for the last two books, as opposed to the first two books, which are straight up history. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of interesting things. Cavalry's back. Uh, Cavalry's back. It is the black. As revealed later, it's going to be turned out to be Blackwall cavalry. Yep, I really thought it was going to be Achilles. So I, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> but this leads us to the discussion of horses in warfare, of which there is so much interesting stuff because horses are technology. Sure. Now, think about this for the moment. The Bronze Age horse combat was primarily for the uh, settled agricultural civilizations was not horseback riding, but charioteering. So you'd have this large, expensive chariot. You'd have a chariot driver. You might have some sides on your chariot or uh, a bow, or you'd be wielding a bow and shooting people from your chariot. This is how chariot combat is done in the Iliad, where effectively, unreachably, impossibly immune to damage, people just strewn across the battlefield, in and out quickly, destroying everything in their path, and then popping back out. Um, Eventually, this stops when the sea peoples develop a means of skirmishing that is so effective that it causes the collapse of the chariot as the dominant weapon system of the Bronze Age and is possibly also related to the Bronze Age collapse. The history of the Bronze Age collapse is very complicated and our evidence is very sparse in a lot of respects. Um, then, uh, over periods of time, horseback riding becomes more prominent. Um, nomadic horseback riding, of course, is a major part of the ancient world. Uh, the Scythians practice it, the Parthians practice it. Uh, horseback archery is also important, especially among those nomadic peoples. And eventually that horseback archery tradition travels west, or travels east, um, such that India, China, Japan all have extensive traditions of horseback archery, in addition to steppe nomadic peoples. Ha- Interestingly enough, this does not most this does not extend to the West. The West never really adapts adopts the tradition of horseback archery 
For reasons that are somewhat unclear, this may have something to do with the availability of certain kinds of wood at various points and places. It might have been the case that uh, good bows for horseback archery might not have been available west of this period. Um, but you can see the development of horseback archery um, to the east. Uh, interestingly enough, this also leads to the development of what's known as the Parthian Shot, uh, which gets a lot of Romans killed at various points in time, uh, in which one affects a retreat on horseback while shooting back with arrows, um, kind of trapping and confusing uh, the adversary um, who's trying to pursue, just thinking that they have you en route, in which point they would uh, seize the opportunity to charge. Um, this is going to keep going unless you stop me. Okay, well, th- I'm so we not. Can't... Continue. All right. Are you so, running out of stuff Rome, and you need an excuse? Great, Rome. The uh, in ancient Rome, uh, horses were all were important militarily and also economically. Um, so first of all, the uh, class structure of Rome is a little hard to understand, a little hard to explain, and an easy good to go easy way. But uh, the equestrian class, the equites, is not a bad analogy for the bourgeoisie or the middle class for much of the later Roman Republic. Um, In that they own the means of production. Exactly. Um, but it's more, But it's somewhat more complicated because ownership of the means of production is also a thing in the most of the ability. It's a somewhat more complicated class structure than we like to use. But definitely in Marxist analysis, a lot of the equites will come down to bourgeoisie. Um, I want to read an Austin analysis of the Roman Republic now. Does that exist? That must exist. Uh, on top of this, uh, equestrian combat was important uh, to the extent that when you had a dictator as your military head in Rome, they had a number two. The Magister uh, Equilum, Equilum, the Master of Horse. Uh, the number two guy in dictatorial Rome is the guy whose nominal position is in charge of the cavalry. That's not exactly what his prowess, what his duties actually end up being, but it is an important aspect of his duties, uh, and it is relevant to all of the things he does. Um, a very interesting thing that happens not too long after this is two interesting developments technologically. The first, um, probably out of India, and the latter is also possibly out of India, that was a little less clear, uh, is a new form of saddle that allows uh, for uh, one to put more of one's weight into a melee strike on horseback. Um, The second technology is the stirrup, which not only allows for that same thing, but also allows for much more comfortable and uh, easy travel long distances, as now you can stand up on a horse so if you're riding for an extended uh, period of time, uh, the discomfort and um, problems that will come can be mitigated by standing up, which allows you to travel for longer distances, which makes horseback combat um, more viable because it means getting from battle to battle is a lot easier. Um, the development of the stirrup in particular spreads extremely quickly um, throughout the what's known as the core which is this ever-expanding group of the parts of the world that share technology at about this point of time, which is North Africa, the Middle East, uh, parts of Europe, but not as far west as, like, Germany, France, uh, England, um, most of China. Um, eventually, more, more and more places come to be 
uh, engaged with the Corps, uh, India as well. Um, the, the advancement of the stirrup changes a lot because now horses are an extremely viable way of doing immense damage in combat. Um, you put a lance or equivalent on somebody and they are now the most dangerous thing on that battlefield by a mile. Um, this means you now want bigger horses to handle bigger weapons handle on them. Horses that are better I, in fights. I think I need to rein you in now while I see a connection back to the chapter. So Okay! <laughs> what is the connection? We get a little bit about the lances and spears that were used by the Black Laws who show up on horseback to defend the Alliance. At Do least in padded? theory, defend the Alliance. Um, well, it was pretty specific vision of the Alliance. We're going to get into later. But uh, they're padded? Yeah, here's... Here's the thing about spears. Um, did you know that really long wooden sticks, even with padding, will totally kill people? Because yeah, and they will. Uh, and I'm unconvinced that all of those people who got charged with a padded spear should be doing okay. I don't think they are doing okay. I think a lot of them ran, some of them didn't, and those who didn't, have, a lot of them died, and a lot of them uh, ran off with, like, broken ribs. I think this it, chapter... It is mentioned that Netakari's hands are literally bloodstained. Yeah, Netakari in, At some point in this job. chapter? Yeah. Uh, apparently they were very impressive. I think I believe the it. chapter wants me to think that more people came out of that okay than did. And I think a lot of people ran away. I'm not convinced. Like I'm not. I suppose not convinced. I'm not sure why the Black Laws bothered with the padding. They don't want everyone to stop murdering them. They want to not piss off the Leviathans. They, Aren't they um, pissing off the humanists though? Yeah. They're gonna and go, they for I mean, they sure are. killed most of those people. I think a lot of those people ran. More to the point, like, even assuming super future padding that works perfectly, a horse will still kill you. Some people die. Like, a yeah, horse will spear. trample you to death. <laughs> Don't get run over by horses. Yeah, I think a lot of people ran away. Which, Which is another thing. Away. Cavalry charges are terrifying. It is extremely mm -hmm. hard to stand up against a, a cavalry charge and not break formation. This is why the Swiss Guard was so important, because they developed methods and technique to not break formation while faced with a cavalry charge. And that's why they became the Papal Guards. <laughs> a startling amount I will of do this. good at wars back in the day was just doing your very simple plan of standing next to your friends and mm -hmm. not not doing that plan. Mm-hmm. It, to the point that it, it seems like that can't possibly be the secret. Because it's kind of a one-step idea. But, uh... If you want an actual, like, of discussion of, in relative depth about, like, why certain groups are able to resist cavalry charges and others are not, the actual answer here is to read Machiavelli's The Art of War. Um, the problem with Machiavelli's The Art of War 
is that it's not as good as his other stuff. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that he's talking about is extremely specific to his time and place, as opposed to uh, The Prince, which uses the principles and events of his time and place to talk about general subjects, or the discourses on Livy, which talk about Rome and also contemporary politics to talk about similar, more universal subjects. The Art of War is much more particular in its nature. Like, there are extended passages where he's talking about how you should build the particular makeup of your army based on um, what arms each group should have. And, like, he's advancing interesting political ideas by doing this. But it's not as... It's a lot more of a, of a work for a scholar to look at than for a general audience. Which is disappointing, because I like large parts of that book. I mean, he convinced me he was a really reasonable person with the prince, so... The prince is extremely good! Yeah, it was yeah. fine. I, you know what? I wouldn't go so far as extremely good. It was fine. Uh, I, don't, oh. I don't have time for this fight. Uh, I have okay. more to talk so, about with his horses. Uh, you do not. Okay, no. Uh, oh. No, we need to do not horses for a minute. So a plague happens. Yeah. Are we at the plague? No, not even close. So the, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, at one, uh, so it, over the course of like a few hours, literally like two hours, Nine Acre misses the rest of the triumvirate that the Utopians are innocent. In response, they draft a statement. And 9A says, take that, Operation Basketville, the funniest line in this series. 9A, no one's going to be able to hear your statements. That does change later on. Like they It get... does change, but they had no idea that was going to be true. That's like the most pathetic line. They had like, a lot of people working line. on ways to get the message out. Before. I've ever heard in this story. It's like real bad. There were Pro a bunch 9A. of people whose like active job at this moment in time is find a way to get back on the system. Oh yeah, I sure. don't so think like somebody was probably going to do it eventually. Believed that the internet was down for all time. Oh, we don't know that's that's true either. Okay, well so, we do because uh, have... look. Let me point at a part of the text that backs up my theory. They wrote, and I quote: "The triumvirate is drafting a statement. Take that, Operation Baskerville." Now, why would they say that if they thought the internet was down forever? Sorry, no. Yeah, they didn't. That was going to come back, but it, at the moment, it's just like sort of a pathetic response. In any case, then it refers to the Myrmidons as our Myrmidons. After being discharged. After being discharged. Uh, I think you're about, is this like the hospital. former Marine thing? No. Like, like apparently, uh, in the United States military, uh, you don't call someone a former Marine. Uh, if Which you're we Marine, did on this you... podcast. Yeah, they very hate yeah. that. Yeah. You did that on this podcast. I did? No. Liam. I did. I know who I did it to. I'd do it again. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to refer to a Marine who is no longer an active duty or reservist uh, as a former Marine. If you are a, mar a Marine, you stay a Marine for life unless you have been kicked out dishonorably for doing something terrible. Like, saying that someone is an ex-Marine or a former Marine is a way of insulting them. Yes. I think Liam knows that. To make it clear, if you're wondering, that's how I was using it, too. <laughs> Why did I even say that? What? What? Why am I... 
I don't know what I was referring to when I started on the former marine business. Oh, Owl Myrmidons. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm really so, hung up on the horses. We have to move past. Look, a lot um, of the horse stuff was interesting, but I, I have... I didn't get to the economics! Sorry. I need to talk over the Masonic Oath of Office. Not just because I got my victory, even if it was a little underwhelming after the conversation we had when I first said that stuff about the Masonic Oath of Office, uh, but I think it's really good, and I have I have things to say in it. Okay, so you just play over on, and which I have to note. Okay, no, before bad. that, okay. before that, we get the uh, description of Rome by by, by Mame. I have a map of Rome. And I want to just point out one thing about the map. Uh, the humanists are surrounded. And they have, like... In order to escape Ro- Romanova, they'd have to make it across one of their bridges. And then forge past a po- supposedly neutral campus bridge in order to, like, make it out of the city. I don't think... I think they're, like, trapped. I, th- I think there's a good chance that the humanists will be overtaken in Romanova. And, like, I don't know. War crimes. That's not a war crime. <laughs> no, no, war crimes will ha- then happen. Oh, sure, probably. I think that's specifically yeah. what Netikari was trying to do. In fact, I think they, um, what was it that they said they'd let people do? They said, we'll let any humanist go who swears that they agree with us. Yeah. Who swears that Sniper's actions uh, to assault a Romanovan tribune make them an enemy of the Alliance. Yeah, it's And that great. is... Way to Which go. Is, Netikari's, Netikari. like, big deal emphasizing political point since the will to battle is that Sniper is an enemy. The, the and, like, when, when they started fighting, when they started fighting, side. my first instinct was, why are the two, my two friends fighting? Um, <laughs> which tells you a lot about me, I yeah. guess. Um, Netikari has been quite clear on this point. Yeah, no, they have. But I just assume that, like, with the background of Jed declaring war on the Alliance, that they also thought that Jed was an enemy of the Alliance. Jed's a Tribune. He still has the office. That's fucking right. I guess you can just say whatever. Man. As You're not supposed to kill office. Tribunes just because they say things you don't like. That's the fucking lesson of the Gracchi. I'm not saying you should kill Jed. Not now, anyway. Look, if I've learned anything over the last, let's say, eight years, it's that free speech only goes as far as things I like. (laughs) 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 In any case, the the reason why Jed had to die had nothing to do with his speech. His speech was fine. It had to do with, like, his mom. Um, Are we going to get into this again? We're going to get into this again. I'm going to go back to the horses. You're probably right. Somebody should probably kill Madame. Yeah, we all agree with that. I, I um, can't come up with a way to make it not be true. As much as I'm a fan, she's a problem. So as the stirrup spreads... No. Uh, so people pull, go spray uh, paint hunting for utopians, and this is my favorite image in any of these books yet. I'm just imagining, like, a bunch of kids with silly string, like, trying to, you know, yeah, spray wherever. Wartime. There's a plague going on, and people are out, like, prowling the alleys, just spray painting in every direction. 
hoping mm-hmm. to find a utopian coat by luck. Mm-hmm. That's spectacular. It's also something of an indication of just how good is Griffin Claw? Mm-hmm. Like, so, so Especially principles of in camouflage. Like... Um, actual camouflage in the modern day does not try and make you invisible. It tries to do something which, no, which is called disrupt the silhouette. Um, which is essentially to say, when you look at something, your eyes will pass over it without recognizing that there's a body there, as opposed to just the background, because the outline that separates you from the environment is not easy to distinguish. It's not as if you're removing the information, you're making the information harder to notice by passing uh, effort. Um, And when you kind of hear the description of Griffinclaw, it seems like you technologically couldn't have it be instantaneous to match the background that you're traveling to at the exact same speed, right? Like, it seems like it should be a very slight delay as the, as the trajectory changes and whatnot. Um, maybe that's me reading into, like, our modern level of technology, and in fact, in the future, it's so good as to be instantaneous. But it shouldn't be that hard if you know that a utopian is in front of you to see that a utopian is in front of you. Only Minecraft can do it, because 9A can't. Interesting. But 9A did figure out that Huxley was there. No, Huxley's always there. He had to, he knew they were there. He couldn't find Huxley. He had to make Huxley take off their coat. He just intellectually understood. No, 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 not this chapter, an earlier chapter. Uh, The earlier chapter was uh, the lion. Uh, was it the lion? Well, the or lion also turned because he was point. moving stuff in his apartment, right? 9A can't mm-hmm. see Griffincloth. Mycroft can okay. see Griffincloth, probably because they spend so much time around Apollo, maybe? I don't know. Or is this, this is like a Mycroft is really good at something Apollo. thing, you know? I mean, around Apollo and, like, expecting to have to fight and kill Apollo is probably mm-hmm. the relevant term. Yeah. yeah. But since Mycroft stopped narrating... We no longer get the Griffin Claw shimmers, so I just don't think that's a thing ooh, people can tell. Ooh, that's nice. I didn't notice that. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's cool. Also, that's nice. uh, fun thing about camouflage. The U.S. military, uh, a couple years back, uh, changed uh, the design of its camouflage based on a different military contract, and the number of people who got killed spiked dramatically uh, because the camouflage was less effective, and they had to go back to the previous version. That's um, interesting. That's How much so money funny. did they save? <laughs> oh, that's very dark. Uh, like, was it a lot, though? No. Oh. That's not... Like, <laughs> you have to understand, every death in the U.S. military is calculated in millions of dollars. Like, a single death. How much do they spend on uniforms? A lot. But... It only takes a couple of deaths to wipe that out. Does it? Yeah, I need some figures here. Give me some... Like, if you uh, have a $2 billion... Number of active duty service personnel is is like around a million. Um, okay. Yeah, so you have 10 to the 6 uh, people. But not all of them get the same uniform at the same in the same place. This was, I think, um, it was like a desert urban camo. I'd have to look it up. Um... All right. This is not good. Say so you spend a thousand dollars on on each person's uniform, that's ten to the nine dollars, right? So you save it's not one thousand dollars per uniform. 
I it's agree. There's no way it's a thousand dollars a uniform. That's way too much. It's like forty to fifty, probably. Okay, so like, uh, ten to the eight on uniforms. Uh, save one percent. Uh, that's one out of ten to the squared. That's a million. Ah, uh, you know what? That is like a, a death. Well, and like that's for like seven or eight million. We get salary too, though. Back? Yeah. Not no. Nah, well, you have death benefits. Pe- yeah. Hmm. Is- like it's not good when the U.S. military loses people because they lose everything they've invested in that person. How much money? Oh, hey, let's be Why clear. do we? I'm not arguing that it's good when the U.S. military loses people. I want that to be as upfront as can be. I'm just interested in the in the accounting of this uniform thing. Uh, why do we spend? Why do we account every troll to death as like seven, eight million? I guess it takes a lot of stuff. A lot of seven to eight million to to produce a single soldier. I don't. That think doesn't it's sound right. Million. It's not that high, but like you then have to add in expected return because like they don't die before the training's done. You have to continue then feeding them um, housing. Yeah, it adds up. And like when you get to specialized training, like some of that specialized training, like there are not people outside the U.S. military who can do it as well in the U.S. as the U.S. military. Like the language training in particular um, is extremely uh, the intense. Mormons. <laughs> All right. Well, the U.S. military is no longer persecuting the Mormons, mostly. So I think that's no. Of course, we have to what? induct them as a part no. of the mil- integral part of the military. No, the Mormons do language training. I know, <laughs> but I like the idea of going back to like. Okay, I don't actually like the idea, but I find it humorous to think of uh, going back to like the 1850s when the Mormons are getting persecuted by every damn. Pol- political group in the U.S. and getting, like, actively hunted. So many people prosecuted Joseph Smith for treason. It's very funny. Um, I also like how his successor, the guy who has the university... Brigham Young. Brigham Young. Before him, moments were monogamous. After him, moments were monogamous. Just him had moments of being polygamous. So, like, he's the only one who had a real special interest in this. It's very funny. There's there's some Thomas Hobbes stuff I could bring up right now. I'm, I yeah, think hey, this let's book move on. We don't have time for Hobbes the podcast again. Um, okay, so um, what's your next thing? Because the next note I have is the next note I have doesn't make sense. Let me go back to that page reference and try to figure <laughs> out what on earth. Yeah, so I'm... my next note is about. My, my next note is about the Masons um, and my new and my new nuance take on the Inviolate Oath. So the Masons, so a troop of Masons, march up to Kovach Hospital, which no, is on the island between. Fucking what? You're ahead of me by a lot. <laughs> oh wait, I have things before that too. Because the do you have things after the layouts in the layout or something? Because before no. the layout is the the campus. Uh, a large Coming winged choice. creature gets taken out by a car. Yes. So the cars and the monsters are different people. Not necessarily. It could be that that was a large winged utopian creature. It might be, but there's a bunch of giant large creatures around. The utopian yeah, beasts, 
do not sound like they're this big most of the time. I think this. There suggests... are in fact giant flying dragons among the U beasts, like yeah, that they're we've not seen here. before. We've been they've been noted as not being here. Um, I think the huh. cars and this monster thing are different non-utopian factions. Okay. Because if you were okay. running the cars, you would key in your giant anti-utopian scare monsters to not get taken out by your cars. So you're saying that the unlike what Huxley was saying, that the scare monsters and the uh, cars are different. Unless you're suggesting that the scare monsters aren't related to the tracker system going down. I think the scare monsters and the cars are plots by two different organizations. I agree with that, yeah. So then why, so then why is Huxley saying that the Operation Baskerville and the jamming of the world are by the same people doing the cars? Huxley's lying. I think, okay. he's, I think the jamming, plausibly is being done by whoever has the cars. I buy his antimatter electricity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I but there but then you kind of still have two delineated plots, right? Now I have team A who's doing the cars and jamming everything and team B who's released a bunch of terrifying monsters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As an anti-utopian thing. And maybe team cars just sort of saw the monsters and figured this was a good opportunity to pump well, up think, the fear factor. I think the the car thing might be a utopian thing, because I think it's in response to this, trying to disrupt this anti-utopian plot, and also to disrupt the spreading of the Masonic Oath. I don't... Which was distributed, not as a specifically anti-Mason thing, but specifically anti-Cornell and anti-utopian thing. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not so sure. So there's a plague! There's yeah, a plague. Yeah, yeah, there's a plague. Uh, Romanova in the crisis map now has a bio uh, risk sign on it. Uh, so, how does the Iliad begin? With a plague. Uh, Apollo's priest uh, asks Agamemnon for his daughter back. Agamemnon says, nah And uh, Agamemnon's priest, Chryses, goes to pray to Apollo to bring ruin upon a whole bunch of Greeks uh, in response. And Apollo does just that, spreads plague amidst the camp. Um, Apollo, in uh, Homeric language, is both the god of healing and the god of disease. Um, The god of sudden death. I'm going to wiggle my fingers slightly and say the god of sudden death among men. Artemis kind of gets the sudden death among women thing. It's a, there's there's gender involved in the arrows. It's a whole thing. Um, arrows, as we all know, are gendered. Exactly. Um, and uh, relevantly as well, um, a lot of Apollo's imagery is connected in one way or another to sickness or to health. Um, Apollo had a favorite son, Asclepius who has been mentioned many, many times in this book series and for its connections to Bridger um, as the as the god of medicine proper, um, who eventually revives the dead and after reviving the dead is then smoked by the gods to die himself so that he doesn't keep doing that. Um, also, Apollo 
has a bunch of epithets, uh, one of which is Destroyer of Mice. Uh, because one time, somebody prayed to Apollo to kill a gigantic infestation of mice on their island, and Apollo did it. Uh, notably, of course, mice and rats can carry plague where uh, carry plagues of all different kinds, so this also connects back to Apollo as both preventer and cause of disease. Um, also, I had in my predictions that there would be a plague based on the fact that there's a plague in the Iliad, and also the fact that World War One, at the tail end of it, uh, had the 1919 pandemic H1N1 influenza, uh, which used to be a much more obscure topic, and then there was another pandemic, uh, and suddenly now everybody knows about it, besides just me. Um, so, Did you really find people who didn't know about the flu? About the 1919 pandemic flu? Yeah. A yeah, lot of people okay. do. People didn't care about pandemics in particular. Yeah, I care three years ago. I did. <laughs> but I also, like, had to do flu epidemiology for a year as my, like, internship job in high school uh, back at the tail end of the swine flu pandemic, uh, which actually has some interesting connections to the East. Swine I was in high school. Got in... pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Feels a little overblown now. There's uh, technical definitions involved about how far it is and how prevalent it is. Uh, they're not; it's not related to lethality directly. I remember swine flu. I'm pretty sure I had swine flu. Yeah, a lot of oh. people caught it. It was I don't know if I did. unpleasant. Yeah, a lot of people died. Um, I every, every once a week I would have to look up the CDC's information on how many children died this week. Uh, flu and uh oh so when people started saying you know don't worry about covid it's just the flu i was just screaming at everyone how fucking tower terrible it would be to just have a different second flu on top of the first flu so, um, all right you've you've just convinced me the plague must have been the utopians on what on, on the grounds of apollo yeah interesting theory because there is the suggestion that it's a bioweapon, that there could not possibly be a plague this early into the conflict unless it this was artificial. quickly, too, what right? Do you mean, what do you Specifically mean the starting... There, there is no way, today, a plague sprouted in the middle of Romanova organically that yeah. does this. So war conditions are, in fact built to, to to spread plague terribly like the war um, conditions started war two hours ago <laughs> yeah right it's not it's not it's not enough time the people they, you're they making better from, points like, they have a refugee f come from like a, a group of refugees come from like a bar where they were watching as about carlos <laughs> it's coronation and right? the symptoms was... are super weird too right mm -hmm. they're like falling down like it like Paralyzed as, it, as if in like an epileptic fit. Almost. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, you're um, immediately incapacitated. Maybe not fatally though. Boy. Uh, hmm. By the way, uh, epilepsy uh, in the ancient world was considered a sign of divine connection, uh, often to gods relevant to prophecy. Sometimes Apollo. <laughs> Because Apollo was also the god of prophecy among many of Yeah, I, I'm being convinced as well. Um, <laughs> so then we get okay, the mace so, anyway, being spectacular. You, you kind of think there's a bioweapon loose in the city would be more of the top tier problem? 
No, but cell phones went down. I 100% get it. <laughs> yeah, a little, I get it a little bit too. Okay, so. Uh, Masons come up. They yeah. uh, volunteer to. Into Masonic propaganda. They do the best job of everyone right away. Yeah, so they take over the hospital. Now, on the map, I haven't labeled okay. the hospital labeled as a Mason territory. I, I'm what hearing happens. the way you're saying that, and I'm going to let you continue. But I just want to note know. that that's a real framing you just did there. Please proceed. Oh, for sure. Okay, so what happened is that Mason showed up and said they will protect, guard the staff and patients with their lives, with their inviolate oaths. And I think they're like, they're being honest. They're going to try to like protect. Uh, the staff and patients inside of that hospital with their lives, even against other Masons, to the point of their deaths. Now, the Emperor might come on line and order them all to kill themselves, but that'd be weird on a couple levels. Um, not least of which, the Emperor can't do that. Well, no one can talk to anybody. a thing they have said in their inviolate oath is that if the Emperor was standing opposed to them, they would not break their oath. Way to go, Masons. The Masons come across as just really good in these chapters. And I do think that, like, they, they are being honest, and they do really do, on the pain of their deaths, will, like, try to, like, defend the hospital, the hospital staff and patients. So, quick question. What happens if somebody stops being a patient? Explain what you mean. What if I get discharged from the hospital? And I'm a human of the bullseye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I think is going to happen is going to escort me to, like, a Masonic prison camp. It's it's incredible how quickly you found a hypothetical by which you could go back to having a problem with the Masons. <laughs> uh, I don't think... I think, I think I what don't they should believe, probably do... I don't think that anyone is planning on them guarding the hospital for long enough that that's going to become a real problem. I don't think going to let go of the hospital. I oh, think you th- what, you, probably right, because you think this is li- permanent now. They've taken over the hospital. They own it. Yeah. I mean, the Masons are all about permanence. Yeah. So I think what a Roman of us should do is try to like get some sort of program when they get bull- bullseye guards also in the hospital. Yeah. And like they alternate patients. So... Here's the thing Mason about- Bullseye, Mason Bullseye, Mason Bullseye, Mason Bullseye. I try to like make sure they can't even like take up part of the hospital. Cool, sure. That's nonsense. Um, you know what they could do if the people in the hospital wanted to leave? Is the director of the hospital could just relieve them of their their duty? Like they're not this isn't a hostile takeover. They are explicitly as part of their oath there until the director of the hospital feels safe enough to tell them they can go. Ye- yes. What I mean when when the director releases them from their duty, they'll not be bound by oath to protect the staff and patients with their lives. So I, if I was director, I just wouldn't ever let them go. Uh, so I think the best thing to do if you're a Manova is simply to like try to force such uh, an actual like uh, uh, set of conditions on this where you like someone. They will not be able to just take away anyone who's like the staff in the hospital to a prison camp. 
No one has suggested anything about prison camps. Bullseye. With regards to this hospital. Because it's like implied by the oath. It's prison not camps implied. are implied by the oath? Staff and patients. No, isn't a patients? Someone who's just been discharged. You remember... No. Um, no. You're being a lunatic about this. I'm simply noting... This is crazier than anything I've said on this show. Fucking no. Skin dog. Fucking skin dog. (laughs) The skin dog was very reasonable. You explained (laughs) salad. It was not. Nothing I have said has ever come close to skin dog. Salad is just like Mycroft, except, you know, better at keeping his opinions straight. Skin dog. Oh, no. skin dog. You're my favorite skin dog. <laughs> I I'm don't sure this was, a, this was on Canadian public access television at some point. Skin dog was not. We had a conversation in the Discord recently uh, wherein I proposed quite reasonably that the true and proper anthem of the Utopians is the theme song to The Littlest Hobo. <laughs> Go listen yeah. to that and tell me it isn't. Someone needs to inform the Utopians on the TI server that I've solved their hive. You can. You can. can Pretty I? sure they already have a, a theme song that they think is more appropriate. They do, and I showed it to Liam. Um, somebody will. Somebody it's will not be as good. by Ada Palmer. I'm sorry. Uh, Ada Palmer was beaten to the punch with the perfect utopian song in 1963 with the release of the Canadian Littlest Hobo television show. That was 1963? It might have been 62. Somewhere like early 60s. Early 60s? Yeah. Whoa! I know. That show's way older than I thought. Yeah, it's... That dog is so much more dead than I thought. Very dead, yeah. Um... (laughs) Great song, though. I've listened to it three or four times a day since I remembered it existed again. (laughs) Three or four times a day? I'll give to you that the Masons probably weren't going to take people to prison camps before the oath went out. Okay, but But now the oath has gone out. That as soon as the director releases them of this, they're going to be like, okay, cool, and then stab the director in the face and declare a hostile takeover of the hospital that they've just sworn their lives to protect. I mean, no, they just won't leave. I mean, there is the prison camp's instruction manual that's been published recently, so maybe... There is the prison camp instruction line. God, I, I love the, the prison camp releases instruction them. manual. It's very good. It's Tully, so good. Tully is a, is a most reasonable person in the room so consistently, it's very surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think if the direct releases from the program, they simply will not leave. I, and then they won't have an oath. I disagree. The, I think they'll go you off and really do... just don't trust the Masons on anything. At all. I think these people tried to do their best. And I'm not saying they should all leave or we should take over the hospital from them. And they should try to negotiate a subtle agreement with the Masons and the Bullseye people uh, both co-got the hospital. Yeah, because that won't lead to them killing each other in the middle of a hospital. 
Yeah, that's why you alternate beds. No, this is not a solution. This it's is great worse, solution. actually. <laughs> you know it's what better. the whole problem with Romanova is right now? How extremely mixed it is. You know what your solution to a to a situation is? Mix things up more. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yes. Can I talk about Sarajevo yet? No. Uh, okay. We're not even... No. We have too much to get through. Listen, we have a, yeah, the a solution group is not... of people who showed up in Romanova during wartime and said, Hey, even if my hive leader wants us to betray you and they're trying to take over the hospital... I will murder them with my own hands to defend you guys specifically. Yeah, the staff and patients. Yeah, the I pe- don't think we're going to murder the staff and patients. <laughs> I've been pretty clear about this. The hospital defense problem has now been as solved as it's going to get. It hasn't been because of the discharged patients. Now the humanists will be wary about bringing the people in. Okay. Which is why I labeled the part of the map... Not gray, but purple, because the Masons control it now. Okay. We, okay. We're going to be yelling about the Masons plenty. I can't use up all of my Mason energy on this. Uh, <laughs> it's late. So, so, Liam, earlier you suggested that the reason you like the Masons is because you get to ha- have arguments every single day about what it means to be a Mason. Yeah. You have spent the last year arguing at least once a week about what it means to be a Mason. Mm-hmm. With the most hostile person you could have found. Yeah, for sure. Did you make the right decision on which hive you wanted to join? 100%. I'm all in. I don't know what you thought. <laughs> yeah, he's... <laughs> Liam, argument more? or le- More or less argument? It's gonna, always going to take more argument, like always. <laughs> but there's a difference between a good argument and bad argument. And not to Liam. <laughs> That's you're not as wrong as people are going to think you are. Um, yes, you are. He's so wrong. To me, I think it's just between a good and bad argument. Liam doesn't. I was trying to contradict him without actually adding any additional information, context, or perspective, in hopes of demonstrating that there is in fact bad argument even by his standards. I suggest you not taunt me like that. Uh, I'll go brew a coffee and not leave this call. So it was actually really good timing that I had a conversation last week about how I'm actually still very on board with the Masons because I'm pleased that I reaffirmed that before I read the Masonic Oath. Um, Mm -hmm. You read the Masonic Oath? That's a crime! Yeah, it's, well, not anymore. We're going to forget that. It's still, no, it's still a crime! It no, is specifically uh, the crime of treason, which is a, a terrible thing. We're going to have to get into that later. But like the fact that he claims the ability to impose treason on the entire human populace gives evidence to the uh, most wild conspiracy theories before about Masons being able to want to take over the world. Okay, well, fine, In a way that is simply whatever. unnecessary. I'm not even going to address that yet. Um, <laughs> it's often difficult to disengage the things that you know in the present and remember the things that you thought in the past. Mm-hmm. And the and everyone thinks they're better than that than they are. Um, and one of the problems I've had reading these books is that there's a long record of everything I thought in the past. And, <laughs> you know, uh, 
But you've been pro Mason consistently since meeting Martin Gilbert. I've been pro Mason the whole way. I can't believe how early on the author made it clear the Masons were the way to go. But I would be forever skeptical that, like, maybe before I read the Masonic Oath of Office, I was starting to lose faith in the Masons. They, you know, there is the fascism element, and it turns out, no, at the latest possible chance to change my mind, I was still in on it. Yep. Good job, Liam. You are consistent. But you've now committed treason! Uh, nah, it's fine. The Emperor said it's cool. D- don't worry about it. He he gave you a pardon. Yeah. That is... Pardons require you to admit guilt and say, yeah, I committed a crime. Yes, true. Accurate. You're welcome. See what I will do for the audience. Many things. I have never committed the crime of treason because the crime of treason, properly understood, should not exist. But that's beside the point. Oh, Jesus Christ. Even... In- <laughs> this man really hasn't read his Hobbes. <laughs> okay. So, so are we that's... doing this? So the Masonic Oath of Office blares out to the entire world. No, we have things before that. We do. Um, um But uh, oh, so boy, we're talking the last this. thing before that. Okay. The one of the last things before that. Okay, so before that. Uh, before the Masons come and take over the island, um, Nene talks about the students who hate all of the adults for ruining their oncoming choice, which is the funniest sentence I've ever heard in this in this story. Well, it's designed to echo that, Mycroft's sentiments about students huddled on campus watching the political chaos unfold and not knowing if the world that uh, they will live in is this, it has as many choices as they had once expected. As they were yeah, but this was like somebody in 1940 France talking about the next election. Like, no. No. The stakes are too high right now? Stakes are too high right now. That's not going to happen, because the other public system is going to go belly up in the next, like, few weeks. Not happening. Yeah, and I would resent that if I was a college student in France. But I, I wouldn't, if I was a college student in France, I, I would not phrase it in the phrase like, well, you know, they've ruined my upcoming choice between choice for the election coming up. I'm going to say, I think I should become a cousin to make sure I don't get linked in the war. Sorry, did you just say linked? Yeah, lynched. 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 Lynched in the war. But well, that's part of the thing is like political expression in this system is about where you go, what you put yourself under. Uh who you choose to associate with. It's a very different thing than, like, who I'm going to vote for. Sure, but they're both, like, fundamentally undermined by the current situation. I agree. I agree. But, like, that's the degree the, to that's which, That's what like, the sentence is about. But, like, but I not... want to start a family, and I'm scared because the upcoming crisis means that maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I can't, is a very sympathetic feeling. Oh, for sure. But, like, this is different from the... That's like somebody saying that in, um... That's like, uh, uh... What... Like the first thing I thought of was bad... Was real bad to say. Somebody saying that... Or, or, so, a, a, a mixed ethnic couple saying that in Sarajevo before the Yugoslav Wars. Like, you're not gonna have a family. That's just not gonna work out, man. Oh, so you get to talk <laughs> about Sarajevo. We can all talk about Sarajevo. 
those I venting insist you. that we talk about chapter six first. <laughs> see, like, see, someone is present preventing. Yeah, the the most authoritative member of the podcast is preventing you from doing something. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm the servicer, so. <laughs> but like. I, I, it is sympathetic, right? If a student is out there thinking that, I sympathize with them so much. But I don't. But like the the fact they think that is like almost ridiculous to me because like the fact you think your choice is ruined presumes you have a choice. You don't have to have a choice, buddy. You're not gonna have a family. You're not gonna have a vote. You all going belly up. Wait, wait. What choice do you think they're talking about? A hive. Ye- okay. They were promised the opportunity to join a hive. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I, but that's the cho- that's what they're talking about. They had a chance to yeah, define but it's not happen. themselves with a tribe, and that chance has been ruined because now they all need to pick cousin. But it's not like it's just not happening. There's no it's, like, like the, the phrasing is like not happening. Spoiling their coming choice implies there is a coming choice, when in fact there is none. I have bad news for you about existence. It's choices all the way down. Fucking Satsuko, don't talk to me now. <laughs> this feels like a conversation with J.D.D. Mason. Anyway, uh... So, another thing that happens is we get a bunch of people talking about how weird it is that the Empire, before the Masonic Oath is revealed... We get little bits and pieces of like, what what mm. do they mean we're supposed to be around the Utopians? I gotta say, it seems like all the Masons, despite being great, but like them and everyone else in this world individually, are huge morons for not getting why the Empire Hive would want to help the Hive that can make them expand their empire to the stars. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that line specifically. Um... Now we do a close reading of a translated text. Okay. We have I'm to gonna... talk about the things between the Mason... Should we talk about the... You have to talk about things between the Mason's Oath and the... Um... Do I have... One second. Let me check. I sure. have something you. I'd like to talk about. Great. And that is... Go. But first, I need to remind you, and you can cut this out if you want. If you're going to talk about a translation, you I need to explain why it's interesting. Yeah, I will. Okay. So... Before we get to the oath itself, but when the oath is revealed, we get this brief line about uh, Jaolu Gilbreaker kneeling. I have and things clasp- way before that. Kneeling and clasping okay. Emperor Mason's knees, and Nine A says, "Like in old statues and old books," and that's about all we get of that description there. This is a gross injustice to something that is very important happening here that 9A is not commenting on. And that is the fact that this is... Listen to our Iliad bonus episode. Available for patrons. Because this is ritualistic supplication in the Homeric model in which a person asking for something from their social better places themselves in a vulnerable position where the other person can kill them if so desired in or but forces them to confront them and their needs right now. Priam does it to Achilles. Uh, uh, that's probably the most famous 
incident of it, but Thetis does it to Zeus. Uh, in the Odyssey, Circe does it to Odysseus. There are many examples, some of them, in fact, end with one of the parties being murdered. Uh, it's a very evocative, very powerful, extremely ancient and Homeric image that is not dwelt on, that is not described, that is not connected to any of those things in particular. And you just know that if Mycroft was there, was if Mycroft was here to comment on this subject, that that would not be a parallel that would be lost on him, and we would be hearing plenty of it. So this is more of that contrast between 9A and Mycroft, where there are things happening on the screen that are the kind of thing that deserve a Mycroft rant, or that deserve gendered language, or that have all these other elements that are being passed over. And it's interesting to pick those out and interesting to look at them. Because that scene's also, like, interestingly gendered. Because some of the scenes in which a woman kneels before a man are very sexually coded. Like, particularly Circe offering her body to Odysseus uh, is pretty sexually coded. But uh, a lot of the imagery of Thetis kneeling before Zeus... Uh, gets used in, in like, having Thetis presented as nude in a lot of art depictions and whatnot. So if you read Zhao Liu Guildbreaker as a woman, which Mycroft would not suggest, but his language would cause you to have a feminine image in your mind, and you read Cornell Mason as a man, you would have one impression. But if you read them both as male, you would have another impression, something more like Crises kneeling before Agamemnon, or Priam's captured son kneeling and begging of his life before Achilles, or Priam begging of Achilles. You would get different impressions because of that gender. But we're not getting any gendered language because it's 9A. I just find this all interesting. To be fair, I don't think Zhao has a gender. What are you talking about? Zhao is a mason. <laughs> We've been very clear about this. <laughs> That's just staying in. Uh, okay, so. Before that. Yeah, and um, so at the part that we were at, which isn't the oath itself, but is the mm. early discussion about everyone bafflingly being confused. Oh, before that. Okay, then go ahead. Because what we get is 26 minutes, apparently, of track of feed. And it begins with the triumvirate trying to contact Faust. Oh, we land as an English Faust stuff. You're right. It's great. The Faust stuff is so good. <sighs> so apparently, Faust has been trying to contact them this entire time over the commission's uh, private channel. Uh, you know, Pabdalius' private channel. Pabdalius probably dead. Yeah. Okay. So I hope Pop is not dead. I think everyone hopes Pop is not dead. Yes. Maybe he's just being tortured. That'd be fun. Yeah. So, um, we get, like, a couple lines, and then we get the image set they get, they put on, when they can't have a video, and it's of them, age 16, in Ingolstadt's, <laughs> where we find out that Faust is apparently German, uh, and blonde, or used to be blonde. Now he's bald. Sorry. We find out that Faust is German? Yeah, I have issues with Ethnically. Ethnically. Faust looks German, like Mennonites look German, as opposed to, I don't know, being Turkish. 
Are you saying the Turkish people aren't German? Turkish people can be German. Surely not Turkish all Turkish people, are, people Turkish. are German. Sometimes Turkish people can also be German, but most Turkish people are just Turkish. Or Azerbaijani, or sometimes Armenian. That's a joke I probably shouldn't keep inside the thing. Um, okay. So this whole section reads as uncomfortably realistic. Uncomfortably realistic, yeah. dealing with phone lag of telecommunications. And let me just reiterate, now nobody can go see each other because transportation is down. Everyone's communicating via laggy, not very good internet connections of like video calls or uh, phone calls that are kind of bad. Uh, and now there's also a plague spreading around. Ada Palmer has been extremely insistent about this book having been written and ready to go, minus some editing here and there, since before the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm not sure I believe that. Um, The section where they say, it's too laggy, everyone turn off their video, is an interaction I've had a hundred (laughs) times. On this podcast. It's the first line we said to each other on... But, uh, when we started this podcast, three days a week at work over the past year, consistently. And at this point, that, it may be never. worth noting that Ada Palmer is also an academic, and academics do a lot of video conferencing calls. And yet, I can't seem the to trick them into being on the podcast. We can, we can, we should ask. this, but we should ask Ada Palmer who she knows. I'll try telling them that we're. In, you had some notes on the things that I should say uh, to... Yeah, they, they get veto rights. You should give them an episode of the podcast. Because, like, the way you phrased the episode... Because like, well, initially it sounded like you were... Hey, come on the podcast to get dunked about gender. Uh, which is not, like... Listen. A great they should invitation. probably feel like they can out-talk me on gender, right? If they've spent their I time think they thinking could, about it... I think they could, but we're going to be edit. We're going to be ending the episode, right? So I understand why someone would be hesitant about coming on if they're going to be especially hostile. Also, like, they don't know who you are. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of, like, asshole podcasts run by weirdos whose whole shtick is dunking on people and making them look stupid. Listen. We are only an uh, an asshole podcast run by weirdos whose existence is to make ourselves look stupid. Anyway, this is all podcast. This is riveting content, you realize. Yeah. Uh, That's why we keep it in the episode. We keep this in the episode? (laughs) Do you make this deliberately (laughs) terrible, Waller? Sometimes. Why? Because if I make it deliberately terrible, then I can't be blamed for it being bad. I promise you, I'm (laughs) blaming plenty. (laughs) Oh, God. Um... So horses. Not horses. Not horses. Okay, so. No, we need to finish Faust so that I can talk about the Masons. Faust agrees that Utopia didn't cause the blackout. Yes, they get, like, people contacting so they can figure out how to communicate even past the the jamming. Yep. Um, Uh, The method of getting around the jamming is to use a bunch of signals that are not normally used because they do things like interfere with deep space telescopes or make whales go deaf, which oh, is yeah. a really interesting image because um, 
it's this decision that is being made in wartime to damage the future in some pivotal way to try and gain a present advantage. Like, this is one of the things I think about when I think about landmines. Um, a landmine is very, very difficult to disarm. And so wherever you place a landmine, you are creating danger for a generation at least after you. Um, and people place landmines all the same because they feel that they need the advantage, that they can justify it, that it's worth doing. Even when, say, the conflict is over, some children playing in a soccer field are going to get blown up by it. Um, some people do that because they're completely short-sighted and they don't care or aren't interested in the consequences after the immediate, and others do so because they think it is necessary or worth it or what have you. Um, but, like, presumably now there are some deaf whales, and hopefully those yeah. minutes That's were worth That's bad news for whales, too. I think whales have been doing better in this world. Yeah, they hadn't deafened them lately, though. That's <laughs> true. Um... Whales are one of the communicating species underwater. Yep. Yes. Like, they're specifically going to not appreciate being deafened. Unlike, I don't want to make any big marine biology claims, but I feel like you could deafen a coral and no one would care. What would it even mean? Can corals hear? Probably not. What does it mean to hear? Anyway. You're going to do this, but you're not going to let me talk about the horses? Yes. No, I'm um, trying okay. to gently so, encourage us to get to the thing I've been trying to talk about this whole episode. So we find out that the Americas, given how they're doing this, because uh, it's a point-to-point connection, and the satellites are all apparently gone. Someone has shot satellites out of the sky, which makes me think it's a little bit a little bit utopia. No, how to, you are incorrect. Most what? of the satellites are there. Three of them are slightly off course. Because I have a note about that saying Bridger. So they don't know if they've been shot or not. Chapter 72. Telescope team reports that most of the expected satellites passed on time, but one seems to be missing and three seem to be a bit off course. Hard to be sure. Okay. Yeah, they're right. Uh, So there's an evidence. That is not evidence in favor of the. um, They can't make it with the satellites. It's a point to point connection, apparently. Uh, so they can't get the Americas, and they can't get Australia. Because they're far away. But they can get all the way to China, but they can't get to India because of uh, something happening in the Kashmir. When is something not happening in the Kashmir? Probably shouldn't keep that joke inside of this line. Keep making these jokes. Um, Con- the so must one of the interesting things here is that Kashmir... Range. is point-to-point connection. Yeah, but the, the cities aren't point-to-point is the problem. There's not even roads. So you don't have people like... You can't use a highway with commuters to build out your map. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Except for... You could probably do it in Kashmir. Except for the Masons, yeah. Yeah. Once again, this entire series is Masonic propaganda. But especially these chapters. Okay. So, uh, they get past, as you said, believes that it's in Utopians. And then... uh, 9A gets in contact with the prince, with with, with Jed. And then, uh, from Algiers, somebody releases the Masonic Oath. 
And in particular, they highlight the lineup of the Utopians. Which is, let me read it to you. Adiquando utopiano speculas futuri aditum absecutorum quae ut spatium voluminius polastur. I swear to God, if after my Plus. warning, your plan was just to read Latin and then sit in silence. <laughs> Let's absorb this. this, this in nomine patri, in nomine fili. Nomine spiritus sancti. Oh I God. have things to say about this exact section of the book. It's interesting. <laughs> It is interesting. Okay, so I tried to translate this, and I want to know Don't! the um. There's a what? translation that's perfectly fine. No, there isn't. Okay, the, you better okay. justify that. The words used, polestra and um, and spatium, are translated as uh something like the surface area of the sc- of the paid scroll. Is expanded, illuminated farther out. Okay, so like the word used, uh, per plus lustre, lustra, is the word you, when it means illuminate, it's specifically illuminate in the sense oh, a manuscript. that, like, no, in the sense that stars illuminate, the sense that planets illuminate. It's not illuminate in the sense of manuscripts. Okay. Huh. That's a very uh, nice spatium connection. I'll give you that one. It's literally just space or extent. Uh, well, luminous um, means book, volume, scroll, or like also cold, fold, or, or coil, or whirl. So, like, you could translate this as illuminating the pages of a manuscript farther out or brightening the worlds of space. I agree. That's probably better. But. Hear me out. It's also better in the sense that it's the thing that I was pretty sure it was getting at anyway. Also, I, I just, feel like I need to talk about. Comment. Yeah, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop translation time for a minute. Uh, let's talk instead about how weird it is that everyone doesn't get what the Masons are doing with the Utopians. What's going on there? Oh, the word absequor. Nope, not what I mean. Liam is referring to the Masonic connection to the Utopians has not been hidden. Like, it's a thing that the Masons have been doing for a while. And is obvious to anyone who gets what the Masons are all about. What What do you think the Utopians are doing to Masons? I guess I should ask this. The Masons need the Utopians to colonize the stars so that their empire can spread to the stars. Like, maybe. Not maybe. Obviously, Um, the Masonic Empire is already in the stars. You just haven't (laughs) looked back far enough into the history. (laughs) All right. Actually, that is kind of a thing that the Oath gets at, and I love it. But also... um, so like Absequor, sure. um, so first of all, Absequor is is I don't think a neologism. I think it appears in Cicero where it means 
overtake. But like I found in lots of other places it shows up. Absicatum specifically appears in something by Erasmus and also in um a, a translation of, of Archimedes uh Greek papers about three dimensional volumes. Um but also I found it found it in a as a synonym in a in a dictionary from like eighteen hundreds I think as a word to as a commanding word. Um so there is this ambiguity about the word Epsicor. It isn't quite a neologism, but it doesn't really appear a lot in the in the historical record. In the sense that when I googled it, half the results had the word PDS on them, and I had to yep. scroll quickly past. There, um, like I said, there's a lot of this book left. Yeah, well, I've already fought that battle. Listen, can we uh, can we talk about the oath itself now? Or how many translation notes do you have? This is about the oath itself. How no, many no. translation notes about the oath do you have? I have a producer in the translation uh, of the of the phrase. I not All right. gonna, you're taking this amount you... of time to say how much you have. I'm going to start talking about some things about the oath. Okay, so, okay. I let's talk about the oath. Um, first, so remember when Jehovah Mason was talking about who was going to become the the trunk of humanity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, this is exactly the idea, right? Did you just say you have I a hit... translation note about the tree thing? No. Uh. No. But yeah, I mean, there's there's okay, imagery right. here then... about how Mason acts as the gardener, pruning the branches and whatnot, and talking about the imagery of the trunk of humanity in mm-hmm. very much There's the same so terms much. that Jed and Faust discussed in Seven Surrenders. Mm-hmm. Which right. is really interesting. And this means Mason has been maybe building into Jehovah since he was really young some of the core concepts that he's going to need as he's older to understand the Oath of Office once he receives it. Well, that's like the great. idea of, of Martin, right? That's the idea of Martin. Martin is supposed to make his son Mason. Yeah. But Martin um, doesn't know what that means. But Martin was raised in a family of, like, the children of former emperors, of the ch- children of former emperors. The, uh, an understanding of the oath has, prim- has been understood by, like, a lot of people around him for, like, a while. I think that the Carter concepts leak out of the oath into somebody's what somebody thinks, and then we talk to the family, and it's going to leak it into the way people talk. No way Martin's going to talk. I am still unclear as to the degree to which Martin was raised by former emperors. What? It's text. It's just text. The Guildbreaker family had former emperors in it. It's not clear whether those were alive at the time of Martin being alive. Mm, Or if they were, whether he was like... But my claim is only that, like, my claim is only that, like, this, 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 this understanding of the oath was held by emperors who talked to their, their families, who then have these ideas in them, right? In the same way that, like, um, Apollo could not help but understand no parts of the oath, understand bits of the oath, because, um, Mason spent so long talking to them. And also, there's all the stuff that the Masonic Hive does. It's what that thing that we keep going over, if you want to understand the oath, 
look at the Empire. <laughs> Speaking which of is which, what Liam's been getting at. <laughs> uh, also great is that we get all of the stuff in here about, uh, for example, where's one of the lines that does this? Uh, Those who scratch me, I shall neither hate nor pity, but cut off as the gardener, the thorn bush. Immediately before, in a second, Cornell turns around and lives up to it and does the thing. He's been assaulted by someone. He's already declared war on everything. And he he does the oath. He passes it on to someone else and moves forward to building the great project. I love yeah. mm-hmm. this oath. It's really, really Liu, good. by the way, is relieved that Mason is no longer having the job of killing the people responsible, that Liu has taken that responsibility from him and is joyous about this. As <laughs> as a bit of extra characterization for Liu trying to do right by the Emperor. I think the world... Good job, Liu. Go, Breaker. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's... Every Mason is spectacular. I think the concern was maybe that he would not live up to the highest principles involved here, right? Because as soon as everyone so sees on that the subject. oath of office... Yeah, go. Okay. I swear henceforth, I will prefer the foundation to the ornament, the useful to the delightful, the prudent to the hasty, the true-slash-real to the daydream. Where? What? True slash real, Lara. Yes. Uh, what I want to address here is that this is the man who fell for Madame. It is true. This yeah, it is a Madame's not entire great. thing is about the daydream ornament, ornamental, delightful, brief flash of perverse delight in a way that is. Terrible for the long-term stability of anything and everything. And Cornell is chief among the people suckered in. And the one most definitely suckered in by her and her specifically. Because Mm -hmm. they are wrapped around each other every time they are in Madame's together. Now, to be fair here, he was also the first and the hardest to leave. Um, I actually have a separate note on that exact section. Which is that this is That's where we true. find out that Faust can't the first, The first sleeve was Casimir Perry, uh, and then Ganymede. Casimir Perry and did, then okay. Vivian. Great. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's not the first sleeve. He did leave pretty hard, though, at the same time as um, yep. Europe. But only once push came to shove. He, for a long time before the world was in crisis, was willing to, you know, get his tears of mourning Apollo to sate for a while in the arms of a manipulating prostitute. Now, if you want to talk about ancient Roman imagery, I can't believe betraying the principle that you stand for in pursuit of orgies is the most late (laughs) Imperial tragic monstrosity you can imagine. I cannot believe how uninterested you two are in the fact that the Masons are going to destroy the Brillists. 
Oh, yeah. On what That's, grounds? I, I, I'm pretty interested in that. It's very funny. Because, like, because we talked about, like, the two different kind of trunks, right? The trunks. And, oh, yeah. And, and, um, Utopians and Bliss are two different trunks. They can't the, both uh, be the trunk. Yeah. And one of the them trunk. is a daydream. Why is one of them a daydream? That's what the Brillists are trying to do. They want to do the oh the mental no, this, uploading this, this, thing. Yeah. You this this is about this is about your particular interpretation of what it means to be a person. No. So I, so to be to clarify, the Brillist long term mortality solution of uploading everyone's brains into some kind of computer interface, you are saying is not real in the way that uh, Utopia's expansion ever outwards is real. Yeah, because it's actually not real. It is, um... You'll be experiencing this is about... digital reality. It's a video what game. Does it mean it's not real? But That's a really interesting point. But one question I have for that is... Why... Is the science fiction gang of nerds who invent unicorns... Not the group that's a, that's a daydream? Why are they the ones that are real? Why are these psychologists who are actively doing things in the world to make this war less terrible by having their checkpoints or making sure that the trackers can have an alternative means of working or having the triumvirate work effectively? Why are they the ones who are the daydream and not the unicorn gang? I agree that it's surprising. It is odd that that's how it panned out. But why one over the other? Because one of them wants to upload everyone's minds into a simulation, and the other one wants to go off ah, so and do the... Empire stuff. I don't know that it's a simulation, exactly. Like, you could make the argument that the Gordians are trying to use technology to access, like, the platonic forms. and that... I think Jehovah has been pretty clear that that's not really what's going to go on, because he describes, in this tree metaphor the Brillists as being expanding the inwards, in. right? Yeah. So if they were going to just turn into awesome cyborgs, like, they could go do colony stuff after the fact. So I, I think the plan... Well, I think they're not going to become just cyborgs. I think they're going to be make new and wonderful psyches. Yeah. New and Wonderful Psyches is beginning to sound more and more like a daydream. I'm, I'm starting to con- get convinced by Liam here. What? It's not a daydream. What do you it's think like a, a different way is? of being. It's a different way of being in the world. Also, I had a whole well, thing about the Greek term psyche for a different part of this chapter, and it's just, it's just not worth doing. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, what else do I have here? Um... Pietas, I think it's interesting Pietetas is just consistently translated as duty slash piety, which is, like, correct if we had, like, no context. But we've in the series, we've had a lot of things about filial piety already. I don't think it's necessary for our, for our sake. Well, but, like, the, the for... issue here is that we're talking about uh, piety in the Roman conception, not filial piety in particular. Because we have filial piety explicitly rejected um, yes. as a thing that no longer binds you once you become the emperor. Well, look. No, and all piety is rejected. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then just the again, the principle of the of of the masons is not in fact piety. It turns out. Uh, 
there's a sort of like uh, gardening metaphor of humanity or to steward them into uh, uh, a to steward them into uh, a into a, a better future future like kind. a bonsai tree no no he's got to find a way to make it sound negative just give him a second <laughs> well the preservation of the past thing like hits at something that Walworth's uh been critical of it before because like the past is explicitly given privilege uh, I, uh the yes. line is something like uh uh, as all that I I shall build past. up living brick on dead and unborn on living. The older, perhaps the most important, with order and planning in the building extends before and after me forever. Uh, mm-hmm. Hence, thus, so, wherefore, we are mason, all caps. Uh, but, like, the older back the brick goes uh, flies in the face of a lot of what Walwer believes, because the older and more distant something is, in a lot of ways the more terrible being bound by the strictures of the of those who came before you becomes. People in the past have held and practiced all sorts of abhorrent things, and being bound to that through untold generations by what are, in many respects, some of the worst of humanity, uh... Is bad. Exactly. It is a like, tested to, to foundation upon which you can build. And also, you get a perhaps... It's tested and found lacking. It You get a perhaps... Sure. Okay, but like it still seems to me to be clear that the the Masons want to they have an idea of what humanity is and want to impose this idea of what humanity is onto the future. But like that's not even like the primary thing. I like freaked me out about this. The primary thing is that like throughout these books, there's been like implications about stuff like people like worry the Masons want to control the world. Think the Masons are getting too big for the britches. Etc. 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 This has been described as being overzealous. The point that, like Mason, when describing his emperor to Jed, calls the says the emperor has two billion people. They're not two billion people. They have three billion people. But but Cornell is rounding down, uh, in order to like not emphasize so much the power the Masons have, uh, over the over the world. It yeah. sounds like to be a sort of fake fog. Mason thinks he controls everything. Well, he, his duty is or, or to does. humanity as a whole. And again, to be clear. His duty is to impose upon all people, all people everywhere, a notion of what they should be. To the point that he calls anyone, any person, who even if they have not agreed to his hive, looking upon this text as treasonous, as a betrayal of the fundamental order of how the way society works. I yes. reject no, Such a it notion. is though. Um, hundred percent, it is. It's a violation of the first law. Fucking no. Yeah, I'm gonna have to move you guys past this because I have some hot Latin takes for you. Okay. <laughs> what Latin? Imperium sum. Yes. Uh, first of all, first and last words heavily emphasized, both given all caps. You know, rhetorically important, but. Imperium is here translated as empire, which, you know, most straightforward, easy to get you translation. But in ancient Rome... They don't translate Imperium. Yeah. Oh, are, oh do they now? Uh, they just type Imperium, imperium which is, like, really imperium, fair. all caps. And that's, like, fair. That's, like, pretty. That's a pretty reasonable decision by, by Carmen. Yeah. The Oh, now you're calling her Carmen. Okay, good. Uh, part, of the her? Issue, part of the issue here yeah. uh, is that... Imperium is not just empire, it is also authority. 
It is also <laughs> a specific discretized, uh, discretized form of authority in the ancient Roman Republic and into the early Empire period. Um, think for a moment of the Fas case. The uh, bundle of sticks, sometimes with an axe on it, carried by the lictors, the bodyguards of important Roman figures. Uh, this is the okay. thing. The I don't love where you're going from. with this. Yeah. The Fas case itself is the symbol and holding of Imperium, which is the authority given to particular office holders, often over particular bounds of space. So a person with more authority had more lictors carrying around Fosques, following them around. So if a, a person goes out to meet with a bunch of, you know, barbarian peoples and has two lictors, each carrying one set of Fosques, that means they have two, the, um, the rank equivalent to two units of Imperium because the authority is, dis is quantized. Um, but to say... Imperium sum is to say, authority uh, is mine. The bounded geographic rank, all of it, belongs to me. I am it. That is what my being is. L'état, ce moi. I don't know enough French. I need to talk to both of the you States, about speaking it's me. in languages ah. that the podcast isn't. <laughs> Listen, that is the, the state? I am the state from Louis the Fourteenth. Yeah, Sun but King hear me out. Of France, famous or not, we need to stop saying things that the audience doesn't understand. <laughs> also, the declaration of yourself as emperor is uh, something problematic in the history of Rome itself. Uh, ignoring for the fact all the actual emperors, there was a pope in the uh, late Middle Ages who would welcome the pilgrims entering Rome for religious purposes by declaring, Sum! Ego sum imperator! I am the emperor! As a oh, way Julian? of... Julian? Hmm? Julian? I forget which pope it was off the top okay. of my head. But, you know, the pope is not the emperor, and this is kind of a problem. This is not how you're supposed to do this. Well... Even the temporal power of the church is not imperial in nature. So, well, they, they thought it was for a while, given that, you know... The, even, the ignoring the, even, even accounting for the donation of Constantine, that's not how it worked. Mm. To pull us back a little, uh, what... It's suggested, although I don't know if it's believed, that this is not Cornell's oath, but the oath that was left to Cornell by Aeneas. Aeneas Mason, his predecessor. Um, it's One. stated by Cornell. Yeah, Cornell does say that. Cornell could be lying, though. Cornell could be lying about that. Yeah, I buy that he'd lie about that. And two, if he isn't, what would he change? He gets three words to change, add, or remove, but he's not allowed to change the meaning, only to clarify. That's so an interesting like pretty one, clear, it? Pretty clear that, like... I wonder how much of this is, like, the original Mason Oath, because, you know, there's, there's a point in here where, like, um, and it's like, well, if we imagine that it was translated during the, you know, the Enlightenment from the original Persian, yada 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 yada, bullshit, 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 bullshit. Um, but, you know, that's not true. 
Wawert coming down real hard. I... Is this not true? Here's it's simply thing. not true. You're so hard in on hating the Masons that it's actually reached this is the not point even... where I thought <laughs> that textually the Masons were supposed to have started 300 years ago. But every time they're mentioned, you make me less and less sure that you didn't just convince me of that when it was revealed <laughs> as being a lie. <laughs> every so time it comes out up, that the... a little more, I think, are the Masons 5,000 years old? No! Obviously not! It's also, not. there's a lot of wall imagery here uh, in this oath. Uh, wall imagery is notable because, of course, A, they're literally masons. They construct out of stone. Uh, stone, of course, symbolically is permanence, eternity, the thing that humans create that can outlist, outlive human life and last forever. Uh, a wall is, of course, a door without hinges. Yes. <laughs> if anyone wasn't sure, just to be clear. Just to be clear. Uh, the building of walls is also um, symbolically tied to humanity's origins because cities, these images that are so very important to this book, cities, the places where everything happens, cities, the things on the covers of every book, uh, except one of the French editions. The French editions are weird. Uh, cities. And the Polis. The Polis is fun. Okay, we're not going to talk about the Polish editions right now. Cities. Uh, were originally, in many ways, uh, characterized by the fact that they had walls to prevent their despoiling by outside forces. And the iconic image from humanity's first narrative text, the Epic of Gilgamesh, at the end of that story, after everything that Gilgamesh has gone through, after gaining the ability to become immortal and have eternal life and failing to hold on to it, the thing he does at the end is to write his story into tablets and to build walls around the city that he rules. So the this tablet here and the walls that the Masonic Empire builds tie back to the earliest moments of history. In theory. In imagery. And now that's a bunch of dead air. I did want I'm to like point out. I'm just trying to figure out, out had, if I, I believe had, the Masons are old or not. Um. Okay, so like I had an actual point that like I immediately got covered by all the reactions to me stating the truth. Um, but you're gonna tell uh, me the capital T truth about the Freemasons right now? Yeah, they're not. They don't control the world, man. That's that's all I'm saying. In that sounds terror, like a conspiracy a theory to me. Maybe they did. <laughs> Maybe they no. Um, it would look very different if that was true. Like, a couple of different axes. Would it? Um, Maybe they did a bad job yes! for a long time. Why do you want to join them now? They're doing a good job. He's now. wanted to join them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> They'll let me argue about whether or not it's a good idea to join them. <laughs> you could do that without joining them. Okay, so... Uh, I wonder. Black so, like, there's a, there's a note that, like, the text is is rough, as if it was made by like this the um, the people in the Enlightenment who would just make like, the job was things to, make to put on 
make mottos. I think it's what happened is that somebody in in twenty one fifty or something, somebody took out somebody whose skill line was like like mine and asked them <laughs> to write an oath. And this is what happens. Uh, also, Can as a note, be? the whole the whole three word change thing is it's a little tricky. But there's a few things about Latin that makes it easier. Like um, you can do and in a single word, like blank mm-hmm. quay. So you don't need to constantly mm-hmm. put at 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 at. You can just do the blank quay, blank quay over and over again, um, mm-hmm. which allows for a lot of these very repetitive sequences that have very evocative imagery. Um, and have that be an effective means of communicating the idea. It also means this is fuck ton full of adjectives. Uh, the the Latin the la- the 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 utopian thing has a single verb, and the rest of it is fucking participles. Yep. So awful. Uh, there's also everyone so, hey, what's a immediately jumps to. Utopians as the hive. I don't know if I buy that. Like it's capitalized. Utopian is capitalized. Of course, okay. it's the hive. It must be the. It would be d- even if utopians weren't in the oath. Masons should be doing the thing they're doing for utopians anyway. A thing I've been uh, railing about since like, I don't know when, but a long time ago. It's it's absolutely the hive because the masons should be backing the utopians because the utopians are going to let them expand their empire. That's what empires are for. But here's the thing that I would consider: utopianism, the idea that humanity can live in a way better than the way we are doing, and that there is a way to construct our society that is better than what is than what we live in now and than what has come before and that we can think about it and design it and imagine ways that that can be and work towards it, that could be something that the Masonic Oath would want to protect, even if it didn't involve going to space. Look, if it didn't say brightening the bright... Uh, well, that could have come later. Space, that could have come later. Could have come later. No, that's the only verb there. It's the only verb. What else What, what else did that sentence mean? You can change the verbs. You only got three words per person. Yep. It's also possible that that's what it referred to early on, right now, an easy change. And now it refers to the hive, yes, exactly. Oh, which also reminds me, the the translate speculus as, like, Mara's glimpses, that's not true. I think it has to be hope. Okay. Yeah. I can see it. Speculus has, like, there's, like, lots of things that look like speculus. But specula, like the, the thing they're referring to, doesn't conjugate to speculas. There's no form of that. Okay. It does work with the gender and number and like everything else, but it can't be mirror glimpses. So it, if you look at the number and every gender and everything, I think it has to be hope. It narrows down to hope. Little hope, actually, specifically. So like the little hope of the future. I have a whole translation if you want, but like, yeah. Uh, cute little imagery here. Um... There is a brief moment in the oath that talks about uh, the three-horsed chariot uh, that pulls things forward. I think it's, uh, yeah, my three-horsed chariot, uh, humanity's driving forces, ambition slash desire, thoughts slash contemplation slash planning, and hope. Avidum, avidium, cogitatonium, and spam. The interesting thing about this, a three-horsed chariot is, A, an imperial, a symbol of the empire. 
um, in the Imperial period. Um, it is the it is known in Russian as a troika, which is also the term used for uh, a th- group of three people whose job in political society is to rule from the shadows to guide the society. It's the Russian equivalent of a triumvirate. <laughs> so, uh, relevant imagery. That's there. fun. This was going to be a long one. So can I'm going to move on to a completely unrelated thing. Can we have another emperor? Sorry, what? What do you mean? Can what? we have another emperor? And if we have another In emperor, story? must Cornell start a new oath? Ah, the question now is, now that the oath has been revealed, is it possible for the office of emperor to continue on past Cornell Mason? Is that the right yes. answer? That is the question. It's not an answer, yeah. so it's not the right answer either. I'm trying to translate from Leonese to English. I'm uh, very coherent. Walwer, did you understand before I explained? No. Um, Thank you very much. Of course there can be another emperor. Why would there not be another emperor? It's. I think the relevant question here question. is... That the emperor swear the oath without knowing its contents. Which is... It technically is. true. And in fact, the next emperor won't know the contents of the oath before swearing it. Kind of. They there will won't. be three words that might be changed or added or removed. And who knows what those words would be? Yeah, it's not ideal for them. For them? The Masons. So, I think a relevant question here is like, is this an oath that J.E.D.D. Mason would take? Or is there something here that's unacceptable? All of it. Uh, yeah, the whole thing. It would have been perfect if they had been tricked into it earlier. Like I said back then. Immediately. This would have solved all of the Jehovah Mason problems. Uh, why do you think they would object to all of it? Why do you think he would object to all of it? I owe no duty, piety to humanity, and it owes none to me. Rather, we are one oak thriving in sun and oh i can't skip those verbs uh clement i don't know clement what is clement uh mercy is a comparable concept pleasant is another comparable concept like clemency yeah yes i have never seen it like that before okay anyway that line right away that one Jehovah does not believe himself to be one with humanity, fundamentally. I mean, okay, that's not what I was going to say. It it fundamentally imposes bounds on uh, Jehovah, which is not the terms in which he declared one humanity. It's it's not a a good enough Okay, so that's an issue with with Jehovah Mason's current stance, as opposed to his previous, like, when he let himself be, take the tri- uh, oath to become a tribune, which presumably included some limits on something he would do. Temporary. Uh, Temporary ones. Yeah. This As also... opposed to the lifelong yeah. oath of office after he has declared war on humanity. Okay. This that also conflicts with any loyalties to Spain, because Mason's loyalties cannot be so limited. Entirely reasonable. But that's not something he's actually stated as to whether he would take loyalty to Spain. 
I agree. But it would that, mean he'd have to pick. It does mean he has to pick. If he wants to, yeah. It could also just be, no, I demand unconditional surrender and keep saying that forever. It's It might be effective for him, but yeah. Um, if That's Jehovah Mason do, right? had done like, this, I don't know why you expect it all else. would have been fine. It would have been more likely to be I, fine. I, I really hope sort of... like there's not three words that make him genocidal. Oh, for sure. There's like a knot like, you can apply somewhere. Like, and also bomb the cousins. What? That would be terrible. <laughs> One of the worst three you editions. Cut neither Kernel from I have. shall neither and nor from I shall neither hate nor pity. I shall hate and pity! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those who scratch me, I shall hate and pity and cut off <laughs> as the gardener the thorn bush. Perfect. <laughs> That's actually what kind of good. gardener is that? That must be like the most Thorns emotionally volatile gardener I've ever heard of. Right? You know, you get scratched by a, a thistle, you want to destroy it. But perhaps you pity the thistle for its weakness, but that will not stop you from the virtue of revenge. <laughs> Revenge is a virtue now. Ugh. Well, we both hate and pity them, you know. And it was a virtue a long time ago, too. We're just wrapping this back around. Mm-hmm. This is the way we solve the Masonic Oath problem for Jehovah. But anyway, uh, I want to note a brief other interesting thing here. Mm-hmm. 9A claims she can't read Latin. 9A has been our Latin translator for three books. Why do you think I've been translating these these texts independently? Okay, well, hear me out, though. I don't mean to sound rude, but your translations tend to be pretty much what 9A came up with. This, I'm going to prevent Look us here. from going down this track, because it's going to take us 20 more minutes. Uh, this raises a couple of questions. Either A, 9A is underselling her skills, and, like, Maybe this particular segment is, in fact, too much for her. We have seen her say, this segment is too much for me. I gave it to a different Mason, and, you know, Zhao Lu did it for me. Uh, uh, no, that's the thing that could happen. Mason. They aren't a Mason. I want to get into, I actually want to open up an old argument and restart it. 9A isn't lying that they can't read Latin. 9A could still translate the Latin. Here's why. Um, Laboriously. Oh. I've had this fight with my co-host like three times. There is a difference between being able to produce a translation of text and being able to read text. Rene probably can't read Latin, but if you give them, like, half an hour and a dictionary, they can work their way through it. That would be reasonable. Yeah, that's probably Uh, what's happening. There's also the relevant question of... There's a third possibility. And this third possibility suggests that 9A will learn Latin later, or get better at translating later, and that the translations of our previous books are, in fact, not yet done in-universe. That's not that true. That is an absurd uh, First claim. of all... Yeah. <laughs> why, why is that not true? They're we published. know when the two previous books are published, they're already published. Why would we that be an every... that we have? Oh, like, we no. know when they're published. That's not the same thing as the edition that we are reading 
has been published at this moment in time. Wait, yes. No, no, I'm fine. It's, it's, yeah, it is. Do you think, like, 9A has produced, like, an a extra special volume for... Well, the alternative is, like, that there's the just a bunch two. of 9... That in, like, the well, published edition that you can go to Have you heard about store. reactions Listen, 9A to... has not been translating Latin in the middle of a global crisis previously. <laughs> They're on a timeline here. We got... We got... Sniper's chapter, which most people didn't, which has the warnings about in it, right? Yeah. We have very good reason to believe the vis- the versions of the earlier books we read were the published versions. We have good reason to believe that a lot of the things that are in them are in the published versions. And we don't have there's reason no to believe reason. the Latin chapter, for example, yeah. has translations that are independently has any translations. For one thing, right? Um... 9A would be identifying themselves in the text. Yeah, several times. And B, um, there are... Mycroft is always very careful to, like, give enough information even if you hadn't read Latin. Yep. Yeah, but we knew it went through an editing pass post-Mycroft. Look, th- yes. this just isn't good More evidence. Than once. 9A was, is doing this in real time. They don't what, have like time this? to sit down and translate a bunch of Latin. Sure, I agree. Like later, after the war is a question. But we, but it isn't later. It's happening right now. Well, no, but, but maybe I'm later the previous after the books war. could have been translated after the war. I, it seems like a really weird proposition to take. It's a weird proposition, yes. But it has a very interesting consequence if you assume if you take it to its conclusion. Okay, nine. It means nine A's around long enough to learn Latin and translate. That's also true. I think which means they either survive the war or make it quite a ways in. Mm -hmm. Now you're on record as stating you expect nine A to die. Yeah, I think nine A will die. I I'm I'm suspecting like. 9A will last long enough to translate some Latin. And also, consequently, Zhaolu Guildbreaker will also be around long enough to translate some Latin because there's part of the will to battle that uh, gets passed off to Zhaolu uh, to do instead. Um, so. That's that's my call. <laughs> Maybe it's like post 50 years after Twin Anonymous is on from 9A they publish these books. <laughs> Okay, I could see it. 9A, we've talked about this. 9A, fully in this, in the fourth book, we know exactly who 9A is. Like, their name. Like, we don't know their We name. don't get the actual name, but we could, like, figure it out if we had access to in-universe materials. We could figure it out. It's, it's the weird servicer who's in the deputy census jacket. Yep. It's, like, real obvious. And the servicer records will have abundant information that like corroborates where they where she was at a given point in time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, like I think there's a good chance that the, the servicer records will be deleted, but like, yeah, yeah, right, right when the cousins get deleted. Yeah, I'm still wondering if there's going to be an explanation for how the hell we are reading these books. Uh, if there's yeah, going to be some like time travel shenanigans or something. Well, some of them were published. Yeah, they the were future. published in the future. 
Yeah. Oh, you think we're in the past. more justification than that. Okay. Uh, I think that's just the conceit of writing, and I was going to give that one a pass. I I think that would be ter- per- perfectly appropriate. But also, these books are weird enough that I think it's on the table. I don't think it's particularly likely, but I think it's a thing that is worth considering that maybe there will be an explanation. Okay. So, <laughs> Jalu Gilbreaker, about to become more important in the story. Mm-hmm. I'm excited! Yeah. Maybe they can use their extra long neck to, like, peer over obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> what could mean? What do you mean? They're not even a person! Like a grade school bully. And this chapter ends with 9A reading the comment section on an internet post. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, and it goes and great. 9A like, has the gall to start saying that people are stupid. My god. 9A, you're the person who told them Utopians did it. <laughs> uh, yeah. On, on top of this, like, there's a lot of reflection in 9A's discussion of just everything about the weight of the responsibility of their platform, especially of the Anonymous's platform. Talking a lot about the Anonymous's platform, including like the, uh, everyone's looking at my typos as they come across the screen in real time. Uh, mm-hmm. Every word I'm thinking will have consequences, etc. It's like, I'm just thinking, this is probably very similar to the feeling of, I was an academic that no one cared about, and then I wrote a best-selling science fiction book and my Twitter following exploded, and now I feel like I have a bunch of responsibilities and I'm supposed to do certain things and not do other certain things, and it's weird and different and kind of stressful. Oh, I wish you had. And also, just made everyone that in the comment section is an asshole. Um, because the thing I'm gonna say about it is that <laughs> you were you were talking earlier about how we have like a Sue Young who's really young and potentially incompetent, doesn't really know what they're doing. Um, I was gonna say, uh, that's also what our anonymous is, and I think this is our clearest piece of evidence so far. Yeah. That they just shouldn't have the job, and perhaps their insecurity is justified. I mean, also, they went along with making a triumvirate! Yeah, that too, but also, they didn't identify (laughs) the anonymous. I'm sure not. I think you're getting hung up on this technicality. It's not a technicality, it's what happened. (laughs) <laughs> it's a it is a fundamental truth upon which the rest of the story now must be built also I want to just mention this how has there not been a Brillist Anonymous how do you know there must have been I mean the, so we know the identity of three Anonymouses Vivian, mm-hmm. Mycroft, and 9A but like mm-hmm. the second that 9A is in a room with a high level Brillist has to just blurt out, I'm the Anonymous, uh, in order to prevent the 150-year-old Jin Im Jin from becoming the next Anonymous. Very funny. Yeah. That'd be very funny. Well, I it's think hilarious. it's probably the standard that Brillis become the Anonymous. But all of our Anonymouses, with the exception have of Vivian, cheating? who might have been cheating, uh, yeah, have cheated. Like, Vivian was the censor. I don't think it's adequately addressed in text the degree to which Vivian could have cheated as the censor. But yeah, Brillist, like, 
magical face reading, mind reading powers kind of makes the figure out people's secret identity plot device a little less believable. Yeah. If, if, um, Chihan and I are fucking and they hid it from Ichin and Jin, I'll give credence to the idea that I'm not all anonymouses are, are fucking. No, sorry. Anonymouses <laughs> are. <laughs> No, 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 all the anonymouses are having sex with each other. Vivian 9A. <laughs> uh, all the way back. The secret second servicer. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> believe the antibiotic regimen they need to go on right after, because some of them are pretty old. Oh my god, that's so much worse, because, like, Vivian's paternal to Mycroft and 9A, and is like, oh, you're my bar kid, come over, meet the family, and it's like, oh god, that would be, uh oh. Is it worse or better than the dead ones? Uh, I think it might be better. Especially like the really dead ones, right? <laughs> Liam, your tone is the thing that's killing me here. You're so like earnest and about the investigation. Well, You're the Martin Guildbreaker of necrophilia. <laughs> okay, but if you think about it, um, there probably is kind of a trough, right? Because once you get past, like, the gooey stage, I'm gonna get back to the horses if you don't let me... <laughs> eventually, you're a skeleton. And if I had to pick, maybe skeleton isn't as bad as...